0: And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions.
1: Justin and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack store.
0: Maybe not specifically that day, but around that day. What were you doing? Where were you living? It was only nine years ago. I was touring, finishing working out some material for a stand-up comedy album called Hear This. I'd go on to record a few months later in May of that year. I was breaking up with a girl I dated for about nine months in Santa Monica. Likely taped an episode of a silly show called World's Dumbest somewhere around that date, if not on it. It was a Thursday if I wasn't spending that night in the little apartment I lived in on the edge of Santa Monica and uh, Bundy and, um, you know, West LA, right kind of where West LA and Santa Monica meet, I was on the road somewhere doing a show. And while I was probably out telling jokes somewhere, a few months before I would meet my wife, Lindsay, 18-year-old high school senior Samantha Koenig was being kidnapped by a sexual sadist and true predator while working at a little drive through coffee shop in Anchorage, Alaska. Following her kidnapping, an investigation, of course, ensued. The FBI was brought in, and finally, Israel Keyes was arrested. When investigators first caught him, they thought a kidnapping might have been his only offense. Far from it. Israel Keyes had gone undetected by police for years since he started his terrible career of murder and mayhem, possibly even probably as early as 1996. Many knew Israel Keyes as a father, a boyfriend, an Army veteran, the owner of Keys Construction in Anchorage. He was the second oldest of 10 children who'd had a very unconventional upbringing, to say the least. But then he seemed to have made a life for himself, a, no- a nice normal life, but he had not, not even close. The real Israel Keys, the one he had hid from family and friends, far from normal. The real Keys just knew what mask to wear to fool everyone around him. He was really good at that. He knew that he had to be if he wanted to keep living free. He knew that no one could, who uh, you know, knew the real Israel Keys would accept him for who he was because who he was was a monster. The real Israel Keys was a serial killer, kidnapper, bank robber, arsonist, rapist, cold and calculating. Keyes was a master of all things related to murder, who studied biographies and novels about serial killers, learning how to perfect his dark craft. We'll never know how many people he really killed, only the few murders he confessed to. If Israel Keys had been killing for years and years prior to his capture for over a decade, How did he go undetected? What insane lengths did he go to to make sure his murders wouldn't be traced back to him? We explore all that and so much more on today's horrific as fuck, sociopathic, true crime, so many flights, and so many rental cars edition of Time Suck.
1: This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck.
0: Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Hail Nimrod, Hail Luciferina, Praise Bojangles, and Serenade us through some true crime, darkness, Michael Motherfucking McDonald. Is he ever going to listen to this podcast, by the way? How much is it going to creep him out if he ever does? Uh, I'm Dan Cummins, Operation Paperclip, Paper Shredder, Shrub Slut Support Group Counselor, Kroll's Cafe Busboy, and you are listening to Time Suck. Uh, 30% off last chance sale for a lot of the 2020 merch. Uh, we have at badmagicmerch.com to make room for some 2021 goodies. Sale runs from the release of this episode uh, by the time you hear it to this Friday, January 29th at midnight Pacific time. Store at badmagicproductions.com. That's the email if you have any merch questions or concerns. And that's it today, right? We just we just burned through just a tiny little announcement and now let's get to some show. Let's, let's yip, yip, yaw this shit and just get into it. It's shitbird o'clock. Time to learn about Israel Keys. We've talked a little about the unorganized versus organized dichotomy in Other Time Sucks before regarding serial killers. How serial killers usually fall into one of these two categories. Created by FBI profiler John Douglas and FBI profiler Robert Ressler, who we covered in episode 203 about the behavioral science unit. Douglas and Ressler found that serial killers, yeah, usually organized or disorganized. Not always, but often either meticulous planners who do things like stock weaponry and clean up after themselves, such as Wichita's Dennis Rader, aka BTK, or Washington State's Ted Bundy before his final few days of freedom, or they're disorganized, people who suffer psychotic episodes or otherwise too mentally disturbed to be capable of organized kills like Richard Chase, the Vampire of Sacramento. People who maybe don't intellectually fun, you know, fully understand what they're doing, like Wisconsin's skin suit in the moonlight wearing ghoul, Ed Gein. Disorganized killers murder much more randomly, leaving chaos in their wakes, typically not worrying about leaving evidence behind, which is scarier. Is it more terrifying to think about someone stalking you, right? maybe staking you out for weeks or months, or that you could be the victim of some random murderous choice made in the spur of the moment by someone who's just seen you for the first time? Both pretty scary. Uh, have I ever mentioned before that, that my dad is an organized serial killer? He hasn't been caught yet, but he's talked to me a lot about it. And I have an uncle who was arrested years ago who was a very disorganized serial killer. So I've thought about this more than most. And growing up, really hard to say, like, you know, which, which guy scared me the most. Uh, Israel Keys, outside of his last murder and the crimes that followed it, was the perfect example of a very organized killer. Ultra organized. He'd say to investigators, There's always a specific way I wanted things done. And I have the whole thing planned out. I have everything I need to do it. He never randomly went on a trip to search for a victim. Uh, He did randomly choose his victims, though based on opportunity. He often looked for victims at parks, cemeteries, uh, campgrounds, anywhere where there would be few witnesses. In one interview, he said glibly, people never expected this stuff to happen to him. Yeah, who fucking would? Uh, Although he never confirmed it, the FBI believes Keyes murdered 11 total victims He would only ever tell them the number was less than 12. Uh, But considering he was an expert liar, able to give his entire murderous double life, you know, secret for, or keep it secret for possibly over a decade from everyone who knew him, can we trust this count? It could be lower, uh, it could be much higher. Also, speaking of lying, my dad is not a serial killer that I'm aware of. Uh, I don't have an uncle who was a serial killer, probably. Do have a fucking couple weird uncles. And, you know, to be totally, you know, transparent, I don't always know where my dad is, you know? So Who knows? You know he has kind of a temper. A lot of things are possible. Uh, back to Keys, though. Uh, he was getting away with his murders less than a decade ago. As recently as uh, 2012. What else was going on that year? Let's explore that a little bit. Gangnam Style reigned supreme over America. You remember that? Uh, Fifty Shades of Grey scandalized the nation. The London Olympics warmed our hearts. The Twilight Saga uh, tragically ended. I forgot about Gangnam Style. Right? The Whoopum Gangnam Style. That whole dance. Oh my God! I remember the kids doing dance that song. Uh, When Lindsay and I first started dating, I remember watching a Dodgers game in LA where uh, they started playing that and it seemed like everybody in the stadium knew the lyrics and knew the dance. Oh, Psy, he's still out there somewhere making music, making tons of money. The the official video video for that song, by the way, has almost 4 billion views on YouTube. I guess it's insane. Uh, In 2012, uh, President Barack Obama was the first president to publicly give support of same-sex marriage. The Aurora, Colorado shooting took place that summer. Hurricane Sandy devastated the northeast, the Sandy Hook shooting devastated the country in December. Uh, Alaska in 2012 where Keyes lived was predicted to exceed 8.9 billion dollars in revenue from the oil industry. Uh, rising oil prices was good for the state economy but not Alaska residents because they had to pay more for, you know, every everything that was imported into the state which was, you know, or anything that was imported into the state which is basically everything. Uh, Alaska's con- economy is mostly run from natural resources like oil minerals and forestry. Uh, a lot of people did make good money living in Alaska in 2012. I keep wanting to say 2012 now because of 2020. I never said it back that way back then though. 2012. Uh, the median income for an Alaskan family that year was 67712 compared to 51371 for the average U.S. family. Uh, construction company owners like Israel Keys uh, working in Anchorage made on average about $60,587 a year. Uh, good money. Uh, Good money, but not like crazy, amazing money. Uh, Not enough money to explain the extensive traveling, hotel rooms, rental cars, uh, flights the keys will take in this suck. It seems that some bank robberies and other crimes of theft may have padded his income substantially. We'll get into that today. Uh, 2012, Anchorage's population was 298,233, sizable chunk of Alaska's total population of well under a million, Between seven and eight hundred thousand, and enough for a careful sadist like Keys to lurk about undetected for quite some time. Uh, We've been to Anchorage before here in the Suckverse with serial killer Robert the Butcher Baker Hansen, subject of episode 148. Uh, Also in 2012, uh, like I mentioned up top, a young woman was murdered in Anchorage, one of at least 30 people to be murdered in Alaska that year. An 18 year old barista, Samantha Koenig, was kidnapped and killed, taken at gunpoint from her job at a little drive-through coffee stand that sat near a Home Depot in an IHOP on a busy road. Security footage shows her giving the coffee to the customer, suddenly jumping back, holding her hands up. She then turns off the lights. A large man comes into the drive-through window, proceeds to walk Samantha out of the coffee shop into his vehicle. Three weeks later, a text from Samantha is sent to her boyfriend's phone, instructing him to go to a nearby park to find a ransom note. The note shows a picture of Samantha and demands $30,000 for her safe return, a return that will be impossible. No one knew at the time, but in the picture of her used for the ransom note, she was already deceased. Over the following weeks, a nationwide manhunt led by the FBI would track Samantha's kidnapper through his ATM withdrawals. Then after weeks of hoping and praying that she was still alive, Samantha's friends and family informed that she had been murdered. Her body dismembered, dumped into the frozen lake uh, Matanuska, The one and only fortunate thing related to her death was that it finally led investigators to Israel Keyes. He went up to a lot of shady shit for a very long time. And had he not been caught following her murder, he would have undoubtedly killed again and again and again. He said as much to investigators. He was a bad, bad dude who led a strange, strange life. Let's learn about his life today in today's Time Suck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. On January 7th, 1978, Israel Keys, no middle name, born in Cove, Utah. Tiny little 400-and-some-person census-designated community off of Highway 91 near the Utah-Idaho border. It looks creepy. Uh, it looks like a place that would have a cult compound. Sorry, sorry if this cost me a lot of Cove, Utah listeners. Uh, but I don't think I'm ever going to go there. Keyes is born to parents Heidi and John Jeffrey Keyes. The two had met as teenagers in their native Los Angeles. He was the second oldest of 10 siblings, the oldest son. Most of his siblings' uh, names have not been made public. Uh, We know he had at least four sisters, Autumn Rose, Hosanna, Sunshine, and Charity. Don't know their ages, don't know much about his siblings. The Keyes family went to great lengths to live off the grid, not leave a paper trail, uh, you know, all the other kids have kept pretty quiet for the most part about their brother since his arrest for years. Many of them, uh, never had birth certificates or social security numbers just because of the way they were raised. We'll get into that. Uh, these kids had a very unique childhood, uh, Heidi and John keys, not normal parents, not even fucking close. I was guessing they might not be super traditional just based on the names of their kids that we know, uh, no Kim's and Annie's Hosanna, Israel sunshine. Uh, they chose to have their 10 kids at home because Quote, hospitals had too many rules. That's what they told uh, what few friends they had. Uh, Jeff hated doctors, didn't believe in modern medicine, big anti-vaxxer conspiracy dude. None of the children would ever have social security numbers until they left his house or go to school. A uh, really big off the grid guy. <laughs> if he would have had the money, I have no doubt he would have built the family a big compound complete with a doomsday bunker, You know, daily multi-hour long prayer slash apocalypse preparation meetings. A paranoid wackadoodle for sure. Uh, I like to hear different different viewpoints so I don't get lost in some little echo chamber, but I honestly don't think I could be friends with uh, anyone who hates doctors or just doesn't believe in modern medicine. It's just such an absurd belief system. Fear Big Pharma's evil empire, the Illuminati web of deceit. All the healing you need comes from Mother Nature and God. You don't need a vaccine. Let's go chew on some elderberry roots and pray away that virus. Drink some apple cider vinegar. You just got to get your root vinegar ratio right, and you'll live 120 years without ever setting foot in a filthy heathen hospital. Doctors don't go to medical school to heal. Wake up, sheeple. They go to learn how to rob lie, spread their new world orders, globalist agenda. Uh, Yay, lack of a good education, leading to fear and paranoia. Uh, Initially, Mormons, uh, Key's parents, sometime early in his childhood, when he's around the age of four, Uh, Heidi and John converted to an extreme form of Christianity called the Ark. Here we go. Uh, I really like where this timeline is starting. Uh, No boring, how did such a dirtbag come out of such a nice family snooze fest here? Uh Uh-uh. No starting this shit off in the suburbs with some emotionally distant father, maybe a domineering mother, but otherwise traditional childhood. No, sir. Getting straight to crazy. Uh, When Israel and his siblings learned to read, it was to memorize scripture. No secular bullshit, no comic books, no fucking socialist fairy tales. No hardy boys, Nancy Drew bullshit. What's Nancy wearing on that cover? A skirt? (laughs) That barely covers her knees? Are you fucking, are you kidding me? Back to the shrubs, shrub slut. Keep away from our innocent brood, harlot. Uh, When the Keys Patriarch and Matriarch switched religions, they also switched locations. They moved to just north of Colville, Washington to live in a tiny one-room cabin that John Jeffrey built himself while uh, he and the family lived in a tent for a while. sweet, living that good tent life. Flashbacks to the Bloody Bender Suck. Colville is not far from where I'm recording right now. It's almost exactly 100 miles from the Suck Dungeon, Coeur d'Alene. Just a 40-mile drive from the Canadian border. Almost 5,000 people living in a fairly isolated community far, far from the freeway. Far from so many wicked sin folk. We should all be so lucky to live in a tent outside of Colville with, with our batshit crazy parents, you know, who batshit crazy dad who built an old-timey pioneer homestead cabin to dwell in and read scripture by candlelight like we just left the fucking Oregon Trail. Uh, Colville seems to be a timber town. They have what seems based on some Googling two sawmills, uh, a lumber town surrounded by pine forests. Uh, my dad calls towns like this God's country. He says stuff like that when he's not serial killing, you know. I might reference uh, that with my dad a lot today. You know, just just enough so some people start to really wonder, is he a serial killer? He's been saying that a lot. Uh, And I want to do that just because I'm sick and it amuses me. Uh, Officially incorporated in 1890 in an area settled in the 1820s, Colville literally designed for lumber. The roads built super wide, wide enough to allow a 16-horse team of log hauling horses to turn a load of logs in the street. Very cute little downtown based on pictures. Uh, I've been through once, but it was years ago, and I don't really remember. Colville seems to be doing well for a small community. And I'm sure uh, being from an area similar to Colville, it has no shortage of John Jeffrey Key's paranoid conspiracy types. Uh, After more years brought the family more babies, Israel and his sisters uh, would spend the summer months sleeping in a tent outside. Uh, Then in the roughest months of the winter, Heidi started taking the children to her mom's trailer in Palm Springs because there just wasn't enough room for everyone in the family to stay in that little cabin. This all sounds so terrible. (laughs) Except for the Palm Springs part. At least they escaped to Palm Springs in the winters for a while. Love Palm Springs. Uh, when things open up again in Southern California, if you want a nice weekend out of LA, if you love mid-century modern architecture, laid back bars, solid food truck scene, great hotels, head to Palm Springs. Lindsay and I had one of the best weekends there. Uh, I don't play golf. It's a great golf town, tons of spas. Uh, when not amongst civilization in Palm Springs went out in their little cabin, the Keys family that grew to 12 members lived way off the grid. They lived very simply. Uh, they're, they're, a little shack cabin, no heat, no electricity. Of course, no AC then, uh, no TV, no phone, nothing. No wonder of this motherfucker turned into a serial killer. I love the outdoors, but also love modern living. No electricity, no TV, get the fuck out of here. If one of those people who could just never find anything good to watch on TV, oh, there's all these channels, but there's nothing on. You're just not trying hard enough. There's a lot of good stuff. Uh, the Keys homeschooled their children, avoided interactions with the government and law enforcement at all costs, they avoided interactions with most of their neighbors. They didn't want to risk the souls of their children by interacting with too many people who didn't believe exactly what they did. <laughs> Just so crazy. Uh, they had very little contact with the outside world except for John Jeffrey's job as a maintenance man. Heidi was a stay-at-home mom. His, the kids were, you know, stay stay in the cabin, stay in the tent, kids. Why live this way? It was the lifestyle demanded or mandated. I tried to com- uh, I tried to combine demanded and mandated in one word. It was the lifestyle mandated by the Ark. And what exactly is the Ark? In a word, insane. Let me describe it now uh, with more than one word. The Ark and the Christian Covenant Church that Keys, uh, the Keyes family would later attend preached Christian identity theology. And Christian identity is not very Christian. Uh, it's terrible. It's a uniquely anti-Semitic and racist theology, Christian in name only. It asserts that white people, not Jews, uh, white European people, Uh, those of European white descent, the true Israelites favored by God in the Bible. Identity believers often described themselves as the true Israel. The local Ark church was pastored in Colville by 83-year-old Dan Henry, who preached that white people were the superior chosen race and that the Bible was their story and no one else's. He preached that the uh, Jews literally biologically descended from Satan. Fun. What fun stuff to be taught by all the adults you trust around you. And to have no other opposing voices because your family basically lives on a tiny compound because your dad makes you live in a weird fucking tent uh, homestead situation. Uh, the Keys family were close with uh, uh, fellow Ark churchgoers, the Keyhoes, who like them live north of town, off the grid. Uh, the two families lived about a half mile apart off Aladdin Road, and the Keyhoes were just as bad shit crazy as the Keys. I had no idea all this stuff was uh, <laughs> happened. You know, from from people who came from Colville. Uh, Israel was good friends with Chevy and Shaney, I believe it says, Kehoe, uh, two guys who are now serving lengthy prison sentences in connection with a deadly rampage they conducted in the name of the Aryan Republican Army, which included Chevy Kehoe's 1996 torture murder of a whole family, a family of three in Arkansas. So much murder has come from a few dudes who spent most of their childhoods just outside of Colville. An old A&E criminal justice series called American Justice profiled Chevy Kehoe's white supremacist motivations on season 10, episode 14, Raised on Hate, that originally aired on August 8th, 2001. We can can do a whole suck on these two brothers. Uh, Chevy will likely, very likely die in prison. He's serving three sentences of life in prison without the possibility of parole for the three murders. One of the murders, an eight-year-old girl a real hateful piece of shit. His brother, Cheney Keough, served a 24-year sentence for felonious assault, attempted murder, and carrying a concealed weapon connected to a 1997 shootout with police in Ohio, a shootout he got in with his uh, brother. And these guys were Israel's neighbors and his buddies growing up. These guys went to the same church with him. Uh, He grew up just surrounded by so much insanity. Both families eventually grew tired of the Ark I don't know, maybe not crazy enough or racist enough for them or something. Uh, they started attending another Christian identity church in the area. Colville, just ripe with fringy weirdos in the 80s, apparently. They started attending the Christian Israel Covenant Church. Uh, it feels like it's probably a splinter group. doesn't say in the sources, but it feels like this splintered out from that first church uh, headed by Pastor Dan Henry. Henry was a hateful, crazy white supremacist uh, who moved from Nevada to Colville to open this church uh, in 1975. Israel would also later admit to investigators that when the Oklahoma City bombing happened on April 19th, 1995, many of the people at this church uh, thought Timothy McVeigh, an admitted white supremacist, was nothing short of a hero. For more on the Oklahoma City bombing, check out episode 181. Uh, In the early 90s, Keyes becomes a troubled teenager. Uh, Not even a little surprise here. Uh, he did shit like breaking into his neighbor's homes to steal their guns. Then he'd wait outside for them to come home. So he could, he could watch them freak out when they noticed that their stuff was missing. Like to watch the rage. It's kind of weird. Uh, rebelled a little bit harder than the average teenager. Uh, keys also enjoyed not just hunting animals, but torturing them because you know, he's a budding sociopath. One day, one of his sister's cats got into the trash, I guess one too many times because apparently he had to clean it up. So to punish this cat, Israel took a cord, tied it to a tree he tied the other end of the, around the cat's neck and then shot at the cat until it wrapped itself around the tree and choked itself to death. And then he did not have a reaction of, what the fuck did I just do? Oh my God, holy shit. I need to get counseling immediately. No, he was, he was just like, yeah, whatever, cool. Uh, his childhood is starting to sound more and more like fodder for a uh, resident dark comic, Steph Coxcurvy, bizarro world Jeff Foxworthy to make a time suck routine out of. If you was raised in a tent in a one room cabin, a Christian identity zealots and your hobbies was watching neighbors frantically search for guns you stole and shooting at your sister's cat? You might be a killer. A uh, neighbor said that Keyes was awkward, quiet, a loner. Makes sense given how isolated his family was. Uh, once Keyes did speak to a neighbor uh, about a deer he killed and he freaked this neighbor out. Uh, talking to a neighbor about a deer he killed, a very common thing to do, uh, a place like Colville, not unusual. How he killed this deer though extremely unusual. Uh, He said that his first shot didn't kill the deer, but did incapacitate it. And then instead of shooting it in the head to put it out of its misery, or at least slicing its throat to let it die relatively quickly and painlessly, uh, he decided to slowly gut it while it was still alive. This was troubling enough for this neighbor and then others when word got out to avoid Israel after that, starts getting a reputation as just a fucking weirdo, a dark weirdo. If when you was hunting growing up, you shot to wound and not to kill, so you could slowly gut your deer to death, you might be a killer. Uh, Young Israel was creeping out other country folks outside of uh, uh, Colville, right? I'm guessing that wasn't real easy to do. Uh, Keyes would later say that he knew beginning at the age of 14 that his ideas did not conform with societies. The things he thought were okay and normal uh, were things society considered the opposite. What an, what an interesting way of admitting that you had long been a sadistic, conscienceless monster. Uh, at some point in his teens, he also secretly gave up on Christianity, the strange and hateful form that his nutty parents had been pushing on him. Uh, he did this, you know. Doesn't tell them at this point. Uh, he keeps participating in the activities of the church to keep up public appearances, and and guessing he didn't have a, a real choice at this age unless he was willing to run away to to you know actually leave the church. You know, parents who move their family off the grid, who have, uh, who hate doctors, who hate the government, who subscribe to some extreme religious ideology, very racist ideology, don't seem to me like the kind of uh, people to just say like, oh yeah, cool, no problem. Oh yeah, we don't care if you don't want to go anymore. You do you, buddy. You know, when you tell them you're done. Strongly assuming the Keys household was very authoritarian and patriarchal. Uh, Israel, when he's 14, believed to have been one of two teenage boys in the Keyes family who showed up along with those murder neighbors, Chevy and Shaney Kehoe, at a 1992 rally near Colville where human rights activists were attempting to organize and counter a growing number of racists and neo-Nazis in the area. So 14 years old, and he's rallying against human rights. His Parents are probably proud. 1994, at the age of 16, Israel builds his first log cabin by hand in Stevens County, Washington, on his parents' property. Move in, even though his mother protested. I don't know what exactly she was protesting there. Son, why are you in such a hurry to leave our wondrous tent? Why can't you just stay in our tiny cabin with the other 11 of us? What do you need privacy for? For sinning? Uh, 1994, Keyes is arrested for shoplifting locally, gets off with community service. Parents, you know, obviously not happy. After his arrest, they search his cabin and they find stolen guns. His parents make him return these guns to their neighbors and then move back into their cabin. And because even though this happened in the 1990s, not the 1890s, he has to chop firewood to pay his victims back. Uh, Israel was furious, right? What, really? He steals a bunch of his neighbor's guns and somehow he's the asshole? Uh, He actually was really mad. He thought his parents were being very hypocritical. Uh, They'd encourage him to hunt even though they knew he was poaching. That's illegal. They had no problem eating this uh, technically illegal meat. You know, they never questioned him about where he got the guns he was using to hunt these animals with. So it's okay for him to hunt illegally, but what, he can't shoplift? He truly didn't get it. And I can truly picture this dude and his dysfunctional family. Israel is almost exactly the same age as me. He graduated a year behind me, actually. We grew up in similar places. I knew a family similar to his, off-the-grid types, paranoid types, living in cabins outside of town. What a terrible way to grow up. Secluded in ignorance without literally one decent, open-minded, educated person in your life. Not one. How do you not end up some kind of fucked up after that? Uh, March 2nd, 1996. Israel Keyes is now an 18-year-old psychopath living with his crazy family outside of Colville. He's a dude who likes to shoot at cats, steal guns, gut deer while they're still alive. He's a violent white supremacist whose best friends are other violent white supremacists. And at the age of 18, he also uh, seems to have likely become a murderer. On March 2nd, a 12-year-old Colville girl named Julie Harris disappears while walking to church. Julie was a special Olympics athlete who had two prosthetic feet She'd won a gold medal in downhill skiing. She was five foot one, 115 pounds, funny, bit of a prankster, good kid. Last conversation she'd had with her mom had not been a pleasant one. Julie's mom, Sherry, had told her that since her, her grades were suffering, she would not be able to attend the Special Olympics that year. Uh, you know, Julie's furious. Julie's mother and her brother then left the house, leaving Julie alone with her mom's boyfriend, who would become a suspect. Uh, Julie then went to wait by the side of the road for her neighbors to get picked up and taken to church. But when the neighbors got there, Julie was gone. At first, Julie's mom thought that Julie ran away, angry about the situation with the Special Olympics. But police later reported she had last been seen, uh, quote, with a man in a trench coat. Then about a month after she was reported missing, on March 3rd, Julie's prosthetic feet are found near where the Colville River flows into Lake Roosevelt, Lake Roosevelt, excuse me, at Kettle Falls. And a year later, the following spring on Saturday, April 26, 1997, her skeletal remains found by children playing three miles southwest of Colville in the vicinity of Holler Creek Road and Rydal Creek. Dental records would confirm the bones belonged to Julie. Initially, police thought Sherry and her boyfriend were involved uh, and then, you know, possibly just the boyfriend. Uh, they are actually still considered persons of interest by the police, but no charges have ever been brought against them. Many believe that Julie was Israel Key's first victim. Sherry didn't know it at the time, but after seeing a picture of him, uh, she remembered him frequently being at the house that Julie used to visit. Sherry said that uh, she had an icky feeling about Keys when she saw him, uh, and Julie's friends also had allegedly seen Keys talking to Julie at the local swimming pool. This stuff all came out, you know, kind of much later. And then the fact that she was born with uh, a physical disability, even though she could ski with prosthetics, she she did still struggle to walk. This fact may have increased her odds of becoming the victim of a serial killer. Many of them do seem to prey on those they can easily overpower, especially at first, uh, smaller women, women, children, someone with some kind of disability, someone that can be easily physically overpowered while a budding serial killer is building confidence. Uh, Keys has never formally been connected with Julie's murder, but her mom remains convinced that her daughter was his first victim. No word on whether or not he wore a trench coat around that time, but seems exactly like the kind of dude who wore a trench coat in 1996, doesn't he? Uh, Backing up a bit, Keyes got a job in 1995 in Colville when he he was 17. It'll last until 1997 when the family moves. Uh, He worked in Colville for a contractor named Kelly Harris, and he learns the construction skills he'll use to become a contractor himself later. I guess his parents didn't think working in construction was too devilish. Jesus was a carpenter, so they let him do it. In early 1997, sometime around June, the Keyes family moves to Moppin, Oregon, and 19-year-old Israel moves with them. Now, why do they move? Because they're insane. This is so ridiculous. Uh, Israel had begun to date his contract, uh, contractor boss's, you know, daughter. And he wrote in his journal that he was having sexual thoughts about her. They weren't doing anything, uh, nothing at all, but he was having sexual thoughts. Holy shit! A 19-year-old heterosexual male having sexual thoughts about a girl, his own age? What the fuck? Why not grab the devil's actual dick and gag on it, Israel? Be gone, Lucifina! That selfish, dirty perv putting his entire family's spiritual lives in great peril. Uh, obviously, I'm being ridiculous in the way I'm presenting this, but this actually would be part of the family's motivation to move. Israel's parents forbid their grown-ass son from seeing this girl anymore. She was not part of their church, right? When, he, when they learned of his disgusting sexual yearning, when someone came across his journal, Found out it was like a fucking big emergency meeting in the family. Also, Israel's sister, Autumn Rose, she was having a spiritual crisis. This is even more ridiculous. And she told her parents about it. She was literally worried about her soul. Uh, And this was the tipping point that led them to fleeing from Colville's sin folk. Autumn Rose, uh, apparently, you know, a few months earlier, I don't know, it doesn't say exactly when, but, you know, sometime earlier to her spiritual crisis, uh, you might want to sit down for this. She started listening to Christian secular music. Uh Uh-huh modern music. Maybe even Creed. And it was giving her new thoughts. Watching Scott Stapp gyrate his Satan hips around with his arms wide open. Doesn't say she listened to Creed, but they were getting pretty popular, you know, around this time. Uh, She may have even listened to Striper. Mm Mm-hmm. That Christian metal band who have been putting out Christian, but maybe still kind of naughty butt rock since 1984, right? They had that big album and track of the same name in 1986 to Hell with the Devil. Mm hmm. Sing it, Striper. Uh uh. Get him out of here. Okay, good. Get him out of here. Be gone, Satan. He is a liar and a thief. Uh huh. God, they really bring it, don't they? (laughs) Wait, oh, wait for the chorus. Mm hmm. This is where it gets crazy. Sorry, what? What? Whoa, guys, I think you meant to heck with the devil. Gosh dang. Pretty scary how they didn't even notice Satan slipping into their own tune about staying away from Satan. Anyway, Autumn Rose Keys, you know, she's apparently listening to profane filth like this. Starts watching movies that weren't, you know, uh, specifically made for a Christian audience. You know, they were, but but supposedly good. That's That's how they fucking get you. That's how the devil gets you. You know, she's, she's watching stuff, you know, maybe like um, 1996's Matilda. Daddy,
1: you're a crook.
0: I'm sorry, what? What?
1: This is illegal. Oh. Yeah, keep
0: drilling. Oh, my God. Oh, my make God. Money? Do you have a job? Uh huh. No, uh huh.
1: But don't people need good cars?
0: Oh. Matilda, do you hear that? She just disrespected her father. How was she not immediately and savagely beaten? Right? She did not honor her father. My gosh. This one scene alone could have just thrown the entire Keyes family's faith into the toilet. Matilda's dad, unfortunately, does not stone her to death following that transgression. Uh, Because of these corrupting influences. (laughs) I'm not, I'm being ridiculous about this, but it really was this level of nonsense. Uh, Autumn Rose felt her faith was being eroded. She was having a spiritual crisis. And according to an interview with Autumn Rose many years later, because her parents felt like the devil was corrupting their family in Colville, uh, you know, Colville, Washington, aka the beating heart of Beelzebub, Uh, Her dad decided the Keys family needed to get out quick, right? Find a godlier locale to live in. This family's so crazy. I love it. Uh, Story-wise, I love it. So fleeing from sin, the Keys moved to Maupin. Maupin is uh, maybe just as remote as Colville, but much smaller, right? Less sinners. Uh, Around 400 people total. Not sure how many heathens. Census doesn't give that information. Uh, It's a little whitewater rafting town on the Deschutes River. Very similar to where I grew up in size and industry. Not too far from where I grew up. Very outdoorsy. Hunting, fishing, rafting, hiking, and also, uh, I'm guessing, plenty of be afraid of the big bad satanic government. Get off the grid, paranoid conspiracy types uh, living, you know, far from the freeway uh, in this little area. Uh, the Keys family live again in tents on some raw land outside of town, while Israel and his dad build them another no, just shitty, no electricity, no plumbing, nothing having cabin. Uh, right after the Keys move in, something bad happens to a local woman in the area. Uh, where violent crime rates usually hover around, that shit doesn't happen here. Weird. Somewhere between June 1st and September 1st, 1997, Israel later claims he kidnapped and raped a woman near Maupin. She was the only victim he ever claimed to re- release alive. Is he lying about this? Maybe. Um, you know, this woman's never came forward, whoever she is. FBI investigators who interrogated and interviewed him don't think he was lying about this. Uh, Keys told him he didn't want to kill her uh, she, she, or that he wanted to, excuse me, he did want to kill her, but she begged him to let her go. And then he did. And he said, he later regretted this saying to investigators, I wasn't violent enough. He then worried she would turn him in. Uh, he said, I made up my mind. I was never going to let that happen again. This is way back in 97. Also in June of 97, right? When the keys were moving to Oregon before Israel left, he stayed a month behind for some reason, uh, never made clear. And another little girl goes missing in Colville. Not normal at all for two little girls to go missing from such a small town and later have their murdered bodies found. For both murders to occur in a period of less than 18 months. Uh, For the girls to disappear from a town, you know, we, we now know has a known serial killer or had one living there, you know, a killer who was there when the girls went missing. This is a wee bit suspicious, obviously. Keys would never be charged with either killing, but clearly it doesn't look good. Uh, Just like, you know, with Julie, Cassie Emerson, uh, yeah, 12 years old when she disappeared. She lived with her mom, Marlene, in a trailer, was reported missing after the trailer was destroyed by arson. Her mother's body found inside. Keys would never admit to killing Cassie or Julie uh, or the, you know, um, uh, to Cassie's mother. But later he would tell investigators that the first thing he ever burned down was a trailer. So even more suspicious. Cassie's remains found the following April 1998 in the woods near Kettle Falls, a 13-minute drive from Colville. And when her body was found, based on how it was disposed of, local law enforcement did connect it to Julie. Since the remains of both girls were found so long after they'd been killed, investigators weren't able to determine if either of them had been sexually assaulted prior to being killed. Uh, Israel will be long gone by the time Cassie's remains were found. Shortly after the summer of 1997, the family moves again. This time they moved to north of Malone, New York to live on 10 acres of land near the Canadian border in a shitty, dilapidated old farmhouse. Of course, no electricity, running water. Again, uh, not clear why they made this move. Probably too much sin in Oregon. Maybe Papa Keys found a found a Scott Stapp poster hidden one, under one of his daughter's beds again. Huh? Maybe he found a striper CD. Gosh dang guys! Easy with the H E double hockey sticks. My ears are burning. Uh then the family, except for Israel, moves to Smyrna, Maine where they uh, join an Amish community and start making honey. So fucking weird. John, John, Jeffrey, Heidi, the fam, mine is Israel. Now they're Amish because why not? Uh, Israel's done at this point. He's tired of moving around. He's tired of following his parents' insane spiritual quest to seemingly live among whomever they think is the, the least sinful. When his family moves to Maine, Keys informs his parents during an argument with him about not wanting to move with them, that he's no longer Christian. Hasn't been for years. He's sick of it. And his dad responds by disowning his sinful son, literally ends their relationship forever. Says a lot about what kind of motherfucker he is, right? I doubt God would approve of him being such a terrible father, crazy ass zealot. Uh, there were also rumors he'd been uh, physically abusing Israel and all the other kids for years, you know, abused him constantly when they were growing up. Of course he did. Definitely a hardcore spare the rod and spoil the child type vibe with that guy. Uh, Keys would keep and lose contact with his mom and siblings, but, you know, no longer ever having any contact with his dad after this and no longer part of their strange little flock in the same way and would not be again going forward. His family would keep moving. Uh, you don't know exactly every place they lived. Years later, after his dad's death, four sisters and Heidi would end up in Indianapolis, Indiana for a while uh, where they met two young men, Heidi described as street preachers, charismatic evangelicals who convinced the Keys women to move nearly 900 miles south to join their congregation cult compound. I'll talk about later. They would move to Dallas, then down to Wells, Texas. Israel leaves upstate New York after sticking around long enough to study for and get his GED. And then on July 9th, 1998, 20-year-old Israel travels to New Jersey and enlists in the army. Two ex-girlfriends would later say he did this as a way to rebel against his parents who uh, still hated the secular and sinful U.S. government, right? These are the, hated the, just like Westboro Baptist church type people, right? Uh, hated, Hated the military. He becomes a specialist in the Alpha Company, 1st Battalion, 5th Infantry, the 20-year-old was now six foot two, two 230 pounds of pure muscle. The sadist, the dude who had likely killed two little girls already, raped another woman, now learning how to become more violent. This is not going to be good for anyone. From 1998 to 2001, he'll serve first at Fort Hood, Texas, then at Fort Lewis, Washington. Um, on base, Keyes starts drinking heavily, something he never got to do, living in, you know, shitty cabins and tents with his fun-hating parents. He said later he liked to binge drink, but never felt like he had a drinking problem because he could stop at any time. He could go through weeks of training without touching the stuff. I I don't know. I think that part's pretty normal. Uh, Also tried LSD and cocaine. Also pretty normal to me. Uh, Overall, uh, it seems like he actually kicked ass in the military. Members of his platoon would later call him a super soldier to investigators, someone who could carry over 100 pounds on a 15-mile march. Uh, He started watching football games with other guys, you know, just doing more normal things, going to some concerts. Uh, He went to a red, Red Hot Chili Peppers and Stone Temple Pilots concert at Key Arena in Seattle on September 22nd, 2000. I actually saw that same tour, saw the same uh, show three nights earlier in the Spokane Arena. So, you know, things are getting crazy. Red Hot Chili Peppers, he's turned his back on his family values. I don't know if you know this, but uh, they've done a lot of drugs over the years, you guys. They've had a lot of sex before marriage. They sing about it. Yeah. Uh, They use language, you know, even more sinful than Striper. Hmm? The Devil! Also in his psychiatric evaluation, uh, he tells a military doctor he he had known he was bisexual for a while. He'd accepted that about himself. Man, if he had told his dad that, I'm guessing his dad's head might have literally fucking exploded. Uh, now let's back up about a year uh, after he joined the army. Uh, on September 28th, 1999, Israel rents a vehicle from an enterprise in a uh, rental car you know, company in Lakewood, Washington. November 26th, he rents from USAVE in Fort Lewis, Washington. November 29th, he rents from a, uh, a different vehicle from USAVE in Fort Lewis. January 4th, 2000, he rents a vehicle from a budget rental car uh, place in Spokane, Washington. And why do these dates and rentals matter? Because Keyes will later admit to investigators that he killed four people in Washington state, claims uh, uh, you know, which are the subject of an active investigation still by the FBI, Those dates correspond to the murders. And as we'll soon learn, renting cars was part of Keyes' MO. From January 15th to June 1st, 2000, Keyes was deployed to uh, Sinai, Egypt. Unfortunately for him, he had to take a short break from his criminal activities to go do his his real job. Uh, Maybe he didn't take a break. I don't know. I guess he could have killed over there too. If he snuck off base to kill some locals, he never alluded to it. On October 1st, 2000, Keyes makes a down payment on an engagement ring for a girl he's been in a long distance relationship with for quite some time who lives back in Colville, the former boss's daughter, still lusting after her, still writing in his journal. He never forgot about the girl. His parents forbade him to see uh, any longer. You know, they had stayed in loose contact. Keyes had journaled about her extensively during their time apart. He was mad at himself for not standing up to his family when they moved to Oregon. And, you know, he was mad that he didn't just stay with her at that time. He's already an adult. She said yes when he asked her to marry him, believing Israel, when he told her that they were both going to be virgins until they got married, that he was still very religious. Uh, Little did she know that by this point, he had changed a lot. He'd had several sexual relationships. He'd hired sex workers. And, you know, he was also uh, sexually attracted to men in addition to women. Uh, Their storybook reunion would not lead to marriage. By the spring of 20, or by the spring of 2001, she notices that Keyes is acting real strange. He's being evasive. Soon he stops returning her calls. Why? because he'd met another woman in Washington named Tammy, gotten her pregnant several months earlier. He and Tammy had then broken up for a bit, but now they're getting back together. So he breaks up with little Miss Colville to stay with Tammy and be there for their child. In May of 2001, in Thurston County, Washington, Keyes, now going by Iz, receives a DUI, has his license suspended. This is the only criminal charge or interaction with law enforcement he'll have until his later arrest for kidnapping and, and murder in 2012. On July 8, 2001, Keyes is honorably discharged from the army. Uh, before his discharge, Keyes received a medal for meritorious service for being a gunner and several other commendations. Seems from every source we can find that he was, a uh, yeah, by all accounts, an excellent soldier. Uh, Keyes moved then to tiny little Nia Bay, Washington, after he's discharged, living with Tammy and her eight-year-old son, Keaton. Apparently he was a good, uh, you know, stepdad. They weren't married, but you know. Uh, Moving in with Tammy, uh, more rebellion from his past. They're not married. She's pregnant. And the kid who was raised as a white supremacist is now having a child uh, with a woman who is half, uh, you know, Native American, American Indian, and half black. Is got a job in parks and recreation, fixes up their three-bedroom, one-bathroom rental to prepare for a kid. Nia Bay was, uh, like most of where Israel had lived, small and remote. It's also the most northwestern point in the entire continental United States. Uh, A census designated place of about 800 people on the Macaw Tribal Reservation on the northwest tip of Washington state, far from Seattle or even any big towns. Uh, Hop in a boat, motor about five miles off the coast and you're in Canadian waters. Uh, Then from Nia Bay, Israel does a lot of strange traveling, alone for a guy who didn't have a job that required any traveling, really. All this traveling, investigators believe, was for crimes of various types sometimes robberies, sometimes murders, sometimes preparing for future murders and or robberies. Hard to say how many murders he committed on these trips, on these trips, because he was just so meticulous about covering his tracks. His MO was to fly somewhere, rent a car, uh, drive a couple hundred miles away, sometimes over a thousand miles away, usually to another state. He's planned murders long ahead of time, took extraordinary measures to avoid detection. Unlike most serial killers, uh, making traffic, making tracking him, my God, even ever harder, uh, he didn't have a victim profile. Yes, the first two supposed murders were 12-year-old girls, but after that, he was all over the place. Uh, He tended to kill far from home, almost never killed in the same area twice. On his murder trips, Iz also kept his uh, cell phone turned off, paid for items with cash for the most part to make it that much harder to track him to any particular location. Uh, He also left murder kits in various locations around the country that contained, among other items, weapons and cash. The money came from various bank robberies he committed to support his other criminal activities. These caches provided further cover because Keys didn't have to risk boarding an airplane with the weapon or using credit cards that could later connect him to a crime in a particular area. He would take one trip, go hide his murder kit, then he might return to that area to retrieve it maybe months later, maybe years later to actually commit you know violent crimes. At least that's what investigators believe. Keyes also traveled between cities and states with victims, often killing them, burying them far from where he had taken them. He also, once he left Colville, uh, hunted only strangers, uh, most of whom you know, came uh, he came upon in remote spots, such as campgrounds, boating areas, sometimes even in cemeteries. Uh, he bound victims with plastic ties. He would run them down quickly, tackle them if they tried to run. He was a pretty phys- physically imposing dude. Uh, he sexually assaulted, asphyxiated his female victims. Uh, he also apparently did a lot of research about how to be the best killer. Like he literally researched other serial killers, uh, studied some dark role models. He admired Ted Bundy very much, shared several similarities with him. Both were, you know, binge drinkers, uh, methodical, intelligent, felt a possession over their victims. On April 29th, 2002, Keyes reserved a room at, Hon- at the Hong Kong Inn in Port Angeles, Washington. Another murder. Why? Uh, or uh, maybe, we don't know. Uh, in the fall of 2002, Is and Tammy's daughter is born, thankfully, at a hospital, Uh, I have more details about her that I could share, but I'm not going to share them today. She seems like she's tried really hard uh, to keep from being associated with her dad, and who can blame her? Uh, She's a young adult now trying to move on with her life and based on not doing any interviews, uh, doesn't seem to want uh, anyone reaching out on social media to ask her about her monster of a father. Uh, Her mom, Tammy, would later talk about how strange life was with Iz around this time. She said when he'd get drunk, he'd get real weird. Talk about how he had a black heart Talk about how he wanted to get an upside down cross tattooed on his chest, a pentagram on his back, said he felt evil. Uh, she also said he was very controlling. He insisted that she do all the housework. He didn't have to tell her what he was up to ever, but she always had to tell him everything, where she was, who she was with, what she was spending money on, et cetera, where he could just, you know, leave town for several days and not have to say shit about it. Uh, he talked down to her and her friends, uh, could be incredibly arrogant, uh, almost never talked about his father. Apparently asking about his dad was off limits but longed for his mother's approval. His mother, why? Why don't you love me, mother? Uh, His mom didn't seem that interested in her black sheep son. She showed no interest in ever coming to visit them. She never met Tammy, never met their child. Uh, Tammy never once even spoke to uh, Israel's father. Not long after his daughter was born, his dad, John Jeffrey Keyes, passes away on November 13th, 2002. After years of not speaking, Keyes attends his father's funeral to finally uh, say goodbye, or to say a final goodbye, excuse me, and see his mom. And, uh, and this seems like the best place in this narrative to stop down for a, a quick sponsor break. Uh, thank you all so much for supporting this show by supporting our sponsors. Get those deals, get them. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babel's quick 10 minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20 day money back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto, pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck, spelled dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Well, thanks for listening to our sponsors, Meat Sacks. I appreciate it so much. Uh, back to story time now, following the death of Israel Key's father. In mid-2003, when Israel and Tammy's daughter is around eight months old, Tammy is diagnosed with uterine cancer. She'd had stomach pain since towards the end of her pregnancy. And now she has a full hysterectomy and she's given opiates for post-surgery pain. And it seems she developed a pretty powerful opioid addiction. And that this addiction led to relationship troubles with his. That and him, you know, being a controlling murderous piece of shit led to relationship troubles. There was also that. Uh, Tammy would later say that Israel was taking more unexplained trips that he wouldn't talk about. Uh, he was just starting to drift away emotionally. Uh, on August twenty eighth, two thousand three, Keys takes one of his mystery trips and rents a room at the Portside Inn in Port Angeles, Washington. On October nineteenth, uh, he again rents a room at the Portside Inn in Port Angeles, Washington. Is he having an affair? Something more sinister? From February sixth to February thirteenth, two thousand four, uh, Keys rents a silver Volkswagen Jetta with the Utah license plate of 267 WVW in Salt Lake City and drives it 522 miles before returning it. Probably something more sinister with this trip. Uh, By the summer of 2004, things at home, really not good between Tammy and Israel. Tammy's opiate uh, addiction is leaving her sleepy, uh, checked out, interfering strongly with her ability to parent. Iz had essentially taken on the role of being a single dad and he decides to move out with his daughter to a nearby house. Still living on the reservation where, according to numerous others who lived there at the time, he was considered quite the catch. He was a hard worker, devoted to his daughter, real handy, able to fix anything, also muscular, pretty good-looking dude, and apparently hot in the sack. Uh, Not kidding. Tammy later described him as the best lover she'd ever had. Uh, He would date several other local women on the reservation in 2004 and take more mystery trips. Uh, Is would take at least one more mystery trip in 2004 from October 6th to the 16th took a Southwest Airlines flight from Seattle, Washington to Manchester, New Hampshire. And then he rents a vehicle in Manchester, a red Kia Amante, and he drives it 1,745 miles before returning it. Never gives an explanation for this trip. Guessing someone died because of this little vacation of his, at least one person. That's a lot of miles to just, you know, uh, put on a rental car for for no explainable reason. On March 1st, 2005, Iz goes on a day-long canoe trip to an unknown location in Washington State. He was then seen camping at a location that could be uh, only reached by boat or canoe. Can anyone guess what he was doing there? Body disposal, maybe? Uh, on March 12, 2005, Keyes goes on another day-long canoe trip to an unspecified lake, fishing, murdering, body disposal. Uh, on April 9th, not even a month later, Keyes picks up a boat he purchased in Port Angeles, Washington. Later tells investigators, he used this boat to dump bodies in Lake Crescent, Washington. he takes at least three more mystery trips in 2005, uh, a day alone at another unspecified lake in Washington on June 17th, 10 days in El Salvador in October, and then a trip to Gresham, Oregon uh, at the Days Inn. He stayed at the Days Inn for a few days in December. Uh, before the year was up, he also met a new lover, Port Angeles resident Kimberly Anderson, whom he started up a relationship with. Also started sleeping with Tammy again, but then in, summer, in the summer of 2005, she wrecked her car while high on painkillers, would spend 25 days in jail, two months in an inpatient rehab center that fall. And by the time she's out, there's no chance of getting back together with Keys. He decided to stay with Kimberly, uh, who we don't know much about. He'll stay with her for the rest of his life, or at least until he's arrested. Uh, Iz does a ton of solo traveling in 2006. He spends a, a day in Port Townsend, Washington, February 22nd. Uh, he rents a room with the Travelers Inn in Victoria, British Columbia on April 22nd. He flies to San Diego on May 10th from Portland, then crosses the Mexico border into Tijuana before crossing back and flying back from San Diego to Portland on May 15th. He wrote three words regarding this trip in his journal, travel to surgery. Okay, more on the surgery later. Uh, On June 11th, Keyes rents a room at the Red Line in Port Angeles, Washington. On the 21st, he writes, meeting up with Dan Cummins, not the comic, but his dad, for body disposal training. He writes that in his journal, and that's, you know, concerning. Uh, No, he wrote uh, Mexico for surgery follow-up. On June 22nd, 2006, Keys drove from Neah Bay, Washington to Ridgefield, Washington to pick some uh, ATVs up for work. Then less than a month later, July 11th, 2006, uh, Mary Cooper, 56, and Susanna Stodden, 27, a mother and daughter, are murdered along the Pinnacle Lake Trail in Mount Baker Snoqualmie National Forest on July 11th. Uh, they'd gone hiking. Their bodies were found on July 12th. Both had died from fatal gunshot wounds and the two women were last seen alive at the trailhead. Uh, To this day, their killer has never been found. We don't know that Israel Keys murdered them, but he had recently been in that area, grabbing those ATVs, may have returned to the area uh, on the 11th. Many think he killed them. In the fall of 2006, is takes two trips alone to Anchorage, Alaska, another trip to both San Diego and Tijuana, where he may or may not have met my dad for drinks and watched what my dad has called the donkey show. Not sure what that's all about. Something he's talked about. Uh, March 9th, 2007, Keyes moved to Alaska, began his own construction company in Anchorage, which he calls the uh, Keyes Construction Company. You know, pretty straightforward. Uh, Works as a handyman, contractor, construction worker, by all outside appearances, live in the American dream. Have yet to have a dissatisfied customer, he wrote on his website, which might've been true. I doubt he was raping or murdering his customers. Uh, 14 years after serial killer and former suck subject, Robert Butcher Baker Hansen was arrested. Anchorage now has a new human hunter in town. Keyes Construction Company gives him a good excuse to travel around. He can say that he's, you know, scouting out some new jobs. uh, He's checking out some new equipment, maybe even taking a job out of state for a few weeks. Keyes was successful, well-liked around town, known as a reliable, hardworking man who always did a good job. Uh, He lived with Kimberly Anderson, who moved up there with him. Also, after a short time, he was able to get full custody of his daughter, take her out of state from Washington to live with him in Alaska. Uh, Neither Kimberly nor his young daughter have a clue who he really is. According to their Anchorage neighbors, Keyes and Anderson were quiet and polite. They threw a couple small parties each year. Outside of that, they just kind of kept to themselves. The only complaints neighbors ever had about him were noise related. Keyes spent a lot of time running saws, other equipment in the yard for his construction business, occasionally pissing people off because of the loud late evening cutting. We have someone in the neighborhood who does that too. Uh, it'll It'll be like 10 p.m. Sometimes you can hear a fucking table saw if you go in the backyard. Not sure who does that, but pretty sure that they're an asshole doesn't give a shit uh, if it bothers anyone else around. Uh, Keys took so many solo trips in 2007. Three days in Vegas, a day in Cache Creek, British Columbia. uh, Rented a room for a day at Cedar Lodge in Watson Lake, Yukon, Canada. Stayed at a motel in Destruction Bay, Canada the next night. uh, Flew into Oakland, rented a car. Drove it almost 1,500 miles at the end of April. According to his journal, he hit up San Diego and Tijuana on that trip. On April 29th, he had an appointment at CosMed, a plastic surgery clinic in Tijuana. What kind of uh, cosmetic surgery was a super fit 29-year-old veteran who was training to run marathons around this time getting? He would never tell investigators what type of surgery he had or surgeries, plural. They think many of his Tijuana trips may have been surgery related. If it was plastic surgery to change his appearance, it must've been subtle because he didn't look much different, you know, before and after, according to investigative comparisons of photos from around that time. Investigators wondered if he was trying to do something like have his fingerprints surgically modified maybe have some body hair lasered off, uh, armpit perspiration stopped with Botox. Keyes would later admit that the one thing he worried about leaving at crime scenes was his sweat. He also, according to journal entries, may have had gastric bypass surgery, super strange because he was never overweight. Why would someone do that? Investigators have a theory. They think if he wanted to drive for hours on end without needing to stop or spend a 12-hour stretch focused on hurting a victim, not needing to eat, could be very helpful. Uh, did Keys try to biohack his body in some weird way that would help him become a better serial killer? Would not be surprised. Uh, and later later in August, uh, Keys flew down from Alaska to Washington for a few days, rented a room at the Ramada Inn in Squim one night, at the La Quinta Inn in Linwood on another, then flew on to Salt Lake City where he rented a car for four days, went on some kind of hunting trip with my dad. Uh, maybe, you know, he never mentioned hunting, you know, on that trip with my dad, but I don't know. I don't know where my dad was at that time. Law enforcement uh, thinks he traveled around Utah, went to Wyoming from September 2nd through the 6th before flying back to Anchorage. So many trips. On October 29th, Keys flew to Los Angeles, rented a car, drove 95 miles, flew back to Anchorage on November 2nd. What's he fucking doing? Like, there's no word on if he had any business, knew anyone down there. Uh, December 4th, still somehow in 2007, this guy's busy. Flies down to Washington State again, spends time in Edmonds, Washington. Then he flies to Fort Wayne, Indiana, rents a car for four days between December 8th and the 11th. He uh, drives at 537 miles to somewhere, maybe my dad's house. I don't know. I don't know where exactly he, he lived, you know, on those dates. I don't know. Uh, Keys returned his car one day late, December 16th. He was back in Washington. He stayed a night in Kingston, another night in the Ramada and Squim, flew home on the 17th. January 28th, 2008, Keys takes a series of flights that leaves him uh, or he ends up in Mobile, Alabama. Rents a car, drives it almost 700 miles to fucking who knows where. February 6, 2008, Keys takes an Alaska Airlines flight uh, from Dallas, Texas to Seattle. From February 6th to the 15th, he rents a car in Seattle, drives it almost 1,200 miles. Now at that time, I will say, my dad lived in Donnelly, Idaho, 483 miles away. So the math works for a round trip. Just want to throw that out there. February 11th, he takes an Alaska Airlines flight from Seattle to Anchorage, then immediately returns back to Seattle because he said he, uh, Forgot to return the rental car. Sounds like a fucking very lame excuse. How do you hop on a flight after forgetting to return the rental car? And then, and then why do you fly back to, to drive it to the rental car place? Why can't you just tell them where it is? He has no explanation for this. It sounds like a, yeah, very, it's a very weird excuse, very weird story. He goes back, says he returns the car, then heads straight back to Alaska. I, I wonder if he just left evidence somewhere and panicked and had to go back and retrieve it. Uh, there were so many more trips in 2008. Four days in Salt Lake City in July, uh, three days in the LA area in September, a day in Seattle in October, five days that started in Grand Forks, North Dakota, and ended all the way in Phoenix, Arizona in October. Those cities are in over 1700 mile drive apart. he uh, also spent a day in San Francisco in October, spent uh, six days in Seattle to start November, be home for, you know, a little while before going to Honolulu for three days in December by himself. <laughs> so much fucking traveling. Then he'd spend two weeks in Cancun, a few other cities in Mexico, all still in December by himself. Uh, and, that, and that reminds me that my dad really liked Mexican food, which is interesting when you tie it with everything else I've been talking about. Hmm. Uh, more strange trips in 2009 as we draw closer to some confirmed murders. Uh, he flew into Burbank in February, disappeared for four days before returning to Anchorage. Uh, he was away from from home for the first two weeks of April. He was in Seattle, Squim, Washington, uh, Manchester, New Hampshire, upstate New York. Uh, Who the fuck knows where else (laughs) over a thousand miles on rental cars again? On April 9th, 2009, investigators think he's kidnapped and murdered a woman near Tupper Lake, New York, Deborah Feldman, 48 years old, not counted as one of Key's victims, but the FBI does think he killed her. Deborah Feldman disappeared from her apartment in Hackensack, New Jersey, 280 miles south of Tupper Lake. She was last seen April 8th, 2009. By all accounts, I guess she was kind of a drifter, deeply troubled woman, uh, struggling with a drug addiction, who occasionally engaged in sex work. Uh, later, when Keyes was caught, he was shown a series of pictures of missing people, and he just kept saying real flippantly, nope, 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 to each picture until he got to Deborah's picture. When he saw her, he hesitated and then said, I don't want to talk about her yet. Uh, Deborah's body has never been found. In addition to probably killing Deborah in or around Tupper Lake on April 10th, 2009, Keyes is also suspected of robbing the Tupper Lake Community Bank right? His trips, this is, this is what his trips were about. Investigators think a lot of them, uh, and I'm speculating here, but maybe he was telling Kimberly this whole time that he's been going to take out of town construction jobs, right? High paying, you know, little quick jobs, jobs that paid cash, which having a lot of carpenters and contractors in my family is somewhat common, you know, definitely something a lot of dudes would fly somewhere, uh, to, you know, to do, to take some under the table money that you don't have to pay taxes on. My dad has done a lot of these jobs over the years, I did mention that my dad's a carpenter, right? Been a good contractor. A lot of pieces starting to fit here. Uh, but seriously, if he's bringing this cash home, you know, why would she assume that he hadn't done an actual job to get it? It, it would actually check out. She's probably not going to assume he's robbing banks or an engage, engaging in some other kind of theft. Probably not going to assume that he's flying to New Hampshire to, to rob a few houses and kill someone. Uh, that all feels very possible to be. Probable even. This is alibi, alibis. But again, total speculation on my part. Uh, FBI. Uh, investigators think Israel wore sunglasses, a jacket, jeans, gray sneakers, gloves, and a fake mustache when he robbed this bank. If he robbed this bank, uh, I should point out that in 2009, my dad did have a mustache. Uh, uh, whoever robbed it entered with a 40-caliber Smith and Wesson pistol, had an additional 22-caliber pistol on him. Uh, they robbed the bank, fled the scene, and then a toolbox related to the bank robbery was discovered later, less than a mile away, just across the state line in Essex, Vermont. And that night, Keyes rented a room at the Hampton Inn less than five miles away from Essex in Colchester, Vermont. So very suspicious. Uh, later in 2009, one night in June and on another night in September, Keyes rents himself hotel rooms in Anchorage just a few miles from where he lived. Odd. On October six, two 2009, Keyes took a little solo vacation to Kenai, Alaska. A little over two months later, December 17th, he flies from Anchorage to Orlando, goes on a little celebrity cruise by himself Cruise travels from St. San Juan, uh, St. Croix, St. Kitts, Panama, uh, St. John. He disembarked from the cruise. And on December 29th, Keys takes an Alaska flight from Orlando back to Anchorage, Alaska Airlines flight. And then he stays home for six months. We think he at least didn't fly anywhere based on FBI, uh, the FBI investigation. In the summer 2010, he spends a few days in the Seattle area, racking up over 300 rental car miles. Then he flies to Sacramento, racks over another 200 rental car miles over a few more days, then flies home. Five days later, flies to Denver, drives a rental car to Las Vegas. My dad used to live in Las Vegas, and he lived in Anchorage. Not kidding. A lot of weird connections, getting hard to ignore. Uh, From July 18th to the 22nd, Keyes reserves a room at the Flamingo Hotel in Vegas. July 21st, he takes a flight to an unknown location. For some reason, the FBI can't pinpoint where he went on that trip. Some record must have been lost. Then on the 22nd, he ends up back in Anchorage where he'd stay until October. On October 15th, he flies from Anchorage to Chicago, to Boston, and then surprise, surprise, he rents a car. He drives to Maine, racks up a whole bunch of miles, uh, goes to where God knows where else, flies back out of Boston to Anchorage via Chicago on the 25th. Uh, incredibly, he would not take any more uh, lone mystery trips again for about six months, not leave it until April of 2011. On April 23rd, he flies to Juneau, Alaska. Uh, Shocking, I know he rents a car in Juneau, stays at the Best Western for two nights before returning to Anchorage. Investigators believe at at this time, during this trip, uh, he built a homemade silencer, a silencer he would soon use in a horrific crime. I gotta say, my dad likes it when things are silent. He used to yell at me for talking too much during movies. I find that weird. June 2nd, 2011, Keyes flies back to Chicago where he rents a car, begins driving east. He makes multiple transactions on an Indiana toll road and then eventually ends up in Vermont. It's just fucking ping-ponging all over the place. He confesses later to digging up a kill cash he stowed previously in Burlington. On June 7th, Keyes checks into the Handy Suites in Essex, Vermont. That afternoon, he went shopping at Lowe's, drove around town a little bit, uh, did a little fishing in a national park nearby. Then as the sun went down, took a stroll around town, started following a man who got out of his VW bug with the intention of killing him. Just felt right, uh, but the guy moved a bit too fast, got away, so he went back to the hotel, collected himself, prepared to head out again and kill someone else. He left the hotel again shortly after midnight. Meanwhile, not far from his hotel in Essex, in the early minutes of June 8th, 2011, Bill and Lorraine Courier are fast asleep in their bed. The two homebodies lived a quiet, normal life. Bill was 50, Lorraine was 55. They shared a home on 8 Colbert Street. And not long after midnight, Keyes walked from his hotel into their neighborhood, searching for victims. He later said he chose Bill and Lorraine's house only because it fit the criteria he'd set. No kids, no dogs, a house with an attached garage. Doesn't say exactly how he determined all that, but I'm guessing he staked it out earlier. Uh, Their home just happened to be the first home he came across that met his standards. His work in construction allowed him to predict the floor plan of the house pretty easily. After cutting the phone line, he hoisted himself through the garage window, entered the kitchen, From there, he said it was a straight shot down the hallway to the bedroom. He quickly entered their bedroom seconds after entering the house, calling it a blitz attack. He stood over Bill and Lorraine, shining a headlamp uh, in their faces to wake them up. He told them what to do while he zip-tied them, holding them at gunpoint. He asked them if they had a safe, if they had a gun, where their ATM cards were. Lorraine told him they did have a gun, which he took, a 38 Smith & Wesson. Lorraine had been sleeping in her T-shirt and shorts. Keith took some lingerie from her drawer. Uh, you know, taunted her about the lingerie, later told FBI investigators his motivation uh, going forward with this attack with what he did that night was almost completely sexual. A few moments later, while Keys was stripping the sheets from the bed, Lorraine tried to make a break for it. She struggled attempting to roll off the bed onto the floor. Keys grabbed her, forced her back onto the bed, threatened her saying, "If you try that again, I won't be happy. Keys kept rummaging through drawers at one point finding a military insignia called an electric strawberry. It was quite the coincidence. Bill had once served in the same unit as Keyes had, the Army's 25th Infantry Division. Keyes told Bill this, letting him think that because they had something in common, he wasn't going to kill him. Keyes forced the couple into their own car, drove them to an abandoned farmhouse down the road he'd scouted out before. Uh, As they drove, he told them he was kidnapping them for ransom. Other people, he said, would take it from there. Uh, All lies. Uh, Once they were at the farmhouse, Keyes tied Bill to a stool in the basement, leaving the rain alone in the car. Lorraine managed to escape briefly, ran towards Route 15. Keys, much faster than her, runs her down, catches her, drags her screaming back to the, uh, you know, this location where he has uh, her husband tied up. He ties her to a bed. Uh, throughout all this, Bill is frantic. He's shouting for Lorraine. When Keys goes to check on him, he finds that he had worked himself free. The stool he'd been tied to was in pieces. He started thrashing against Keys, which pisses Keys the fuck off. His plans are being disrupted. He does not like that. Investigators later asked what his plans for Bill were at this point. He displayed uh, the same reticence he would later display when asked about sexual activity, saying, I'm not going to say what I was going to do to him. He's hit Bill with the shovel twice, ran upstairs to find his 22 that had that silencer. By the time he got back downstairs, Bill was up again, still trying to fight. Fucking tough dude. Keys opened fire on him, shot Bill in the arms, the neck, and the chest. Bill fell to the floor dead. He's exhaled deeply. This was not how he planned things. Night was going sideways. He goes outside to clear his head. He smokes a cigar for a little bit then he goes back inside, cuts off Lorraine's clothes, gags her with paper towels and duct tape and rapes her twice. During the second rape, he chokes her until she loses consciousness. Then when Lorraine comes to, he brings her downstairs, shows her Bill's dead body just because he's a total piece of shit. Then he puts on a pair of leather, leather gloves and strangles her with a rope. How terrifying. These people were not connected to him in any way. He literally had never heard uh, uh, of these people. Uh, These people had never seen him before he just shows up in their bedroom that night. Keys left their bodies in the farmhouse after pouring Drano over their hands and faces, apparently to destroy uh, some evidence, maybe to destroy some of his DNA. Then he bagged each of their bodies, piled garbage and wood over the garbage bags. By the time Israel left, the sun was up and locals were heading to work on Route 15. Police had no clue what happened to Bill and Lorraine. The only sign that something was amiss was a broken window. It looked like they had just decided to drive away from their home. It would take almost a year for the truth to be revealed. Uh, The house was demolished. The house that their bodies were left in was demolished shortly after the, the couriers were left there and the materials were taken to a landfill. By the time the FBI searched, you know, for their bodies, you know, over a year later, they just couldn't find them. They search for 10, 12 weeks, couldn't find the remains. After killing the couriers, Israel moves on to New Hampshire, where he burns their belongings in the woods. Then he drives to Maine to visit his brothers. Some of his brothers live in there. And on his way back to Chicago, he drives through Essex again, right past the couriers' house, just to relive the high he felt when he'd killed them. Oh, these fucking people. Uh, June 15th, 2011, uh, is flies from Chicago to San Francisco, where he'll spend the night before flying to Anchorage the next day who will remain in Anchorage for the rest of 2011. So much work for all this, just fucking flying all over the place, driving all over the place, storing these kill kits. It's so weird how he just, he just treats like a like a job. Now let's jump to 2012. Take a quick break from Israel to meet Samantha Koenig. Uh, Samantha was 18. We met her briefly before I know, so you get to know her a little bit better. Uh, she was a popular high school senior who sometimes cut class, uh, seemed to get along with everyone, not just the cool kids. She had some troubles, you know, some struggles with drugs, uh, struggles with her mom, but nothing that out of the ordinary teenage rebellion stuff. She was doing well the last semester of her senior year on track to graduate from Anchorage's West high school. She planned on either working with animals or becoming a nurse. Uh, thought she might join the Navy after high school. She had a boyfriend, Dwayne, who she'd been dating for almost a year. She was living with her single father, James, a burly blue eyed man who was known to most as Sonny when she disappeared. Uh, Dwayne had recently moved in with Samantha and James, working as a dishwasher at the seafood restaurant Sweet 100 while he saved up for something better. Samantha had a part-time job as a barista at one of the many little small drive through coffee shacks in Anchorage, a place called Common Grounds. So many of these places around Coeur d'Alene. I go to one almost literally every single day. Uh, she, she was only had only been working there a few weeks before meeting the man who would end her life on February 1st. That night, she was working alone in charge of closing up Common Grounds for the night, uh, the weather was brutal. Of course it was. It's Anchorage in February. It was just over 30 degrees, windy, snowbanks lining the streets. It was slow that night. She was texting with her boyfriend, Dwayne, telling him to leave her alone. She was certain he had been cheating on her. And she texted her dad, asking him to bring over uh, some dinner for her. If only she had texted him just a little bit earlier, that poor man. Uh, enter Israel Keys. After observing the kiosk, this little coffee, you know, uh, drive through spot for several nights in a row, he had decided to rob it. Get a little more brazen with his crimes. This was the kind of crime he would usually reserve for some out-of-town trip, not something he would do where he lived. I guess he just gotten away with shit for so long, he started to feel invincible. He decided to rob a little coffee shack, even though it was on a main road, but it was flanked by five-foot-tall snowdrifts. I guess he figured it would uh, uh, eliminate, those snowdrifts would eliminate, you know, possible witnesses. Before heading to Samantha that night, he stopped at Carr's grocery store where he picked up a Snickers bar, uh, Wild Mild Cigars, they made his way over to the Home Depot near the little coffee shop where he parked his car close to an IHOP that seems to have shared the parking lot, uh, then grabbed his coffee mug, a pair of plastic zip ties, his headlamp, and a 22 Taurus revolver. He wore a tiny police scanner in his ear so he could get the jump on anyone coming for him. And again, he just, yeah, he treated this shit like it was a job and he just needed the money. It's, uh, very different than most of the people we have talked about on Serial Killer Sucks. He's walked up to the window, ordered an Americano around 8 p.m., Samantha's closing time. When investigators later asked him why he went to the common grounds coffee stand that night at that time, he said, because they're open late. Security camera footage showed Samantha serving someone just before eight, wearing a lime green top with her long Brown hair worn down. Uh, whoever, whoever's outside, uh, you know, remains just out of range in the footage. Samantha can be seen chatting casually. She's making the coffee. Then two minutes and six seconds into the tape, she freezes. At this moment, Israel's pointing a gun at her. You can't really get a good look at him. Just see a blurry figure uh, on the security footage. He tells her to turn off the lights. She does. Her hands go up. She moves gingerly to the counter, gets on her knees, where she remains for about three minutes. After that, she goes to the register, scoops out the money from the drawer, then goes back to kneeling. The figure, Israel, uh, leans through the window now, starts to tie her hands behind her back. Israel then climbs inside the window, landing to Samantha's right, kneels beside her, lifts her up. And then the two walk out of the little coffee shop into the parking lot, his arm around her shoulder. As they walk, Keys spots a camera on the ground, a new cannon worth about 300 bucks, he estimated. Uh, he bends down to pick it up and then Samantha breaks away and tries to run. Keys then chases her, tackles her to the ground, tells her that his gun has quiet ammo, that he will use it on her if she tries to run again. Security footage from the Home Depot across the street uh, from the little kiosk shows Key's walking her across Tudor Road uh, onto, into a parking lot between restaurants. There were people around, but Samantha was just too scared to call out for help. Samantha told Keys her family didn't have a lot of money. She tried to talk herself out of the situation, but with this sadistic murdering rapist, that's not going to work. Keys finds out uh, Samantha has left her phone back at the coffee shop with her in the vehicle. He drives back, grabs it, also um, uh, goes into her car, grabs her house keys. It was about 11 p.m. now. They send off, or he sends off a couple texts from her phone, making it seem as though she's, you know, pissed off at something her boyfriend had done, just kind of furthers that. And then around 1 a.m. the following morning, Keys with Samantha still in his car, asks for her ATM card. And she tells him it's in the truck at her house. Keys then takes Samantha to the shed at his house, ties her up, turns the radio all the way up in the shed so no one can hear her scream. The shed was set up for Israel to work in it during the day, so it had two heaters going, a tarp spread on the floor, he turned the heaters on, gave her a bucket to pee in. Later, Keys would say, I moved her hands so that they were in front of her so she could smoke and stuff. And yeah, I just told her to chill out. Fuck is wrong with this guy? Uh, hey, just uh, just enjoy yourself uh, here in this uh, shed. Just make yourself a home. I'm gonna go drain your bank account. Uh, then I might come back and let you live or I might, I might kill you. I don't know. Hey, you know what? For right now, why don't you just chill out? 2.30 uh, a.m., Keys then drives to Samantha's house, breaks into her truck. He's interrupted by her boyfriend, Dwayne, who sees a man in a mask. Uh, is closes the door, flees. Dwayne runs inside, tells her dad, James, the two search the truck, realize that Samantha's driver's license is missing. Uh, Ease manages to get the ATM card before Dwayne spots him. Uh, he'd, he'd, figured the, he'd forgotten the pin number though that Samantha had given him. So he has to go back to his house now. Between three and 5 a.m., he goes back to that shed, ties Samantha in a more complicated way now, and then rapes her twice. Uh, the fucking creep would later say to investigators that it took a while, maybe two or three songs on the radio. When he was done, he stood above her naked, and Samantha asked if he was going to kill her, and she tried to talk him out of it. He then put on a pair of leather gloves and strangled her, recalling later that it took a while for her to die, which annoyed him. He remembered thinking that he still had to shower for the day's activities. Just like no empathy at all these people. Uh, he then stabs her once below her right shoulder blade in her back, makes sure that she's dead, leaves the body uh, while he wakes up his daughter so they can get ready you know, for their day. Uh, While his daughter's getting ready, he goes back to the shed, rolls Samantha's body in a tarp, hides her remains in a lower cabinet, turns off the heaters, double locks the shed doors, and then calls a cab. Uh, He does this by 5 a.m. And then he's off to travel around the country again. That same morning, Samantha is reported missing. Originally, police think she had just run away. Uh, There was a panic button in the common grounds kiosk. She hadn't pressed it. But the more they thought about it, the more unlikely it seemed that she would run. How would a teenage girl run away on foot through Anchorage? Cold, snowy, not very walkable. How did she have the money she'd need to run away if she was just being paid a barista salary, a job she had just started? Poor dad, James, spends the next day standing outside, or I guess this day, uh, the day after she disappears, standing outside the kiosk during his daughter's shift, stands there from from, nearby from 1 p.m. to 8 p.m., just waiting for her to come back. Uh, Later that morning, Keys hops on an Alaska Airlines flight from Anchorage to Houston, Texas, solo. He arrives in Houston, rents a car, Drives it 2,847 miles. What is he doing? That's a long way to drive in a rental car. Also, my dad has two brothers that lived uh, uh, in in the Houston area at that time. Uh, I don't remember uh, talking to him on those dates. (laughs) Could have been down there. February 2nd to the 5th, 2012, Keyes rents a room at America's Best Value Inn in Lafayette, Louisiana. From February 6th to the 11th, Keyes takes a Carnival Cruise Lines trip with Kimberly and his daughter. They'd flown into New Orleans, uh, the cruise departed, um, or they've flown you know, down there to, to join him before the cruise departed. This is fucking psycho robs, rapes, murders, a high school barista rolls her up in the shed, flies down, commits, I'm guessing more horrible crimes. And then, you know, a couple days later, just enjoys a nice family cruise. Uh, he stays the night in New Orleans after the cruise. Then his girlfriend, Kimberly flies home while he stays down there with his daughter on February 13th, Israel and his daughter visit Israel's, uh, uh, mother Heidi, uh, in the little town of Wells, Texas where his mom is a member uh, of a church various articles have referred to as a Jim Jones-type cult. Sounds about right for Mama Keese. Uh, this is worth a brief detour. The Church of Wells showed up in the little backwoods town of about 800 people in 2011. Heidi and a few of her daughters showed up with it. Uh, of course they did. Heidi is a fucking maniac who, along with her now-deceased husband, uh, did a great job fucking up all of her kids with fear and paranoia. If only Striper had been around to set them all free! Maybe they just needed to listen to just a little bit more. Mm -hmm. That is going to be in your head for a while, most likely. Sorry about that. (laughs) Uh, Back to the Church of Wells. The Church of Wells born out of discontent with mainstream Christianity and a desire to live a true Christian lifestyle. One Church of Wells elder wrote, the Antichrist, oh boy, reigns today in professingly godly Christian America. Uh, just a few months after Iz and his daughter visited in May of 2012, a Church of Wells member's three-day-old three day baby would die of natural causes, and the family would not call 911 until the conclusion of a 15-hour prayer session following the baby's death. That did not sit well with locals, got them some, some bad press. Rumors were beginning to spread uh, by the time Iz visited that the church was buying up a lot of property in town, promoting arranged marriages, converting the town's youth into a cult. Uh, people were th- uh, talking about how they wanted to build a Waco-like compound and wall themselves off from uh, a sinful world. Members of this batshit congregation have written online in recent years about the various ways the devil can sneak up on you and take you away from the Lord. Uh, like through things like uh, enjoying the Transfi- Transformers movies, or listening to Eminem, or going to Disney World too many times, or watching reruns of The Wire on HBO. Not kidding. These are real examples they've written about. Uh, And this is where Heidi Keyes and uh, a couple of her daughters may still be living today. It's the last known definite residence I can find. Uh, Back to Keyes visiting Wells now on February 13th, 2002 with his nine-year-old daughter. Crazy ass Heidi Heidi, uh, would later say that it was clear something was wrong with her son because on this visit, he snuck out of the house sometime early in the morning like a teenager. He left a note on his bed, said, gone to fix the window and find a place to hide my guns. Uh, The window, Heidi would say, referred to his rental car. And this next sequence of events is so strange. When she found the note the next morning, Heidi sent a text to the family group chat at 8.05 AM. Izzy, we can take your guns to, and then that part, next part's redacted. If you want, no problem. I love how fucking weird this family is. Uh, mom, I gotta go find a place to hide my guns. And then the mom was like, oh no, no, don't worry about that. Uh, we, we, we know some people. They can hide your guns, no problem. Uh, there was no word back from Izzy all day. Then that night, Israel tex- tex- texted them back. He was stuck in the mud, he said, in the middle of nowhere. At 8.34 p.m., Heidi texted him, we want to get you if you have any idea where you are. No response. 8.52, she texts again, we have four-wheel drive. If you can give us an idea of where you are, we'll come get you. And he does not respond until the next day. What is he doing? Next day, Valentine's Day, February 14th, Israel texts to say that he was uh, parked near a big shopping center in Cleburne, a town of around 30,000 south of Fort Worth, couple hours drive away. The family drives to pick him up. It's a long drive. Uh when they get there, uh he's nowhere to be found. They spend the night sleeping in their van in the parking lot waiting for his next text. What the fuck? Next day, 15th, he's kept them wondering, uh, also kept his daughter wondering where the hell he has been now for about 2 days and now Israel calls to say that he's just a few hundred a few hundred yards away. He's just on the other side of the mall. <laughs> oh, you've been at the mall already? For about 12 hours? sleeping in a van in the parking lot. (laughs) Whoops. Oh, my bad. I forgot to check my phone. I thought I'd already texted you back. Whoops. (laughs) I I went a little hard on auntie Ann's pretzels and I fell into a carb coma. I'm just sleeping, you know, on the other parking lot. Hiding a few other family members, they find him across the mall. He's disheveled. He's incoherent. His rental car, a little uh, blue Kia Soul, is splattered with mud. He starts spouting off a variety of excuses regarding where he'd been. You know, he said he'd he'd run out of gas. His credit cards have been frozen. Uh, He was just, acting confused. He hadn't eaten or slept in days, he said. They didn't know what the fuck was wrong with him, but they didn't really pursue it uh, because they're insane. And he was a psychopath, so they don't ask too many questions. Where the hell had he been? We still don't know. Uh, We do know that since he left Alaska, he couldn't stop thinking about the thrill he had felt killing Samantha. He would tell investigators that later. When he got to Texas, he considered doing something uh, to give him an even bigger rush. He would later tell investigators he considered burning a church or murdering several people inside a church and then leaving them for the congregants to find. He wanted to take things further. Uh, when investigators asked him about February 15th, if he'd really gotten stuck in the mud, he said, yeah, I just, the longer I stayed in Dallas, the longer I was down South, the more I was thinking I uh, I wanted to do something else. Uh, on February 16th, after driving back with his family to Wells, uh, Keyes drove to a house in Alto, Texas, just 15 minutes up the road and broke in. He found some ca- cans of gasoline in the garage. And he's decided, I want to set the fucking house on fire? So he burns down a house. Then he drives over three hours and robs the National Bank of Texas in Azul, Texas, just west of Fort Worth. He robs this bank in just two minutes. He, he walked in with a hard hat, mask, sunglasses, and gloves. Then he buries the money he got at a cemetery in Glen Rose, Texas. He's fucking all over the place right now. Then he goes uh, to Aledo, Texas that same day and burns down a house and burns down a barn just for funsies. He had also planned to abduct a woman near Glenrose, Texas that day, but decided not to at the last second. Uh, dude is no longer cool and calculated. He is in a fucking murder frenzy. just a mayhem frenzy, not behaving like an organized killer. He's out of control. The next day, his mom uh, buys him and his daughter a ticket back to Anchorage. Uh, he pays her $900 cash for the flights. He didn't want to make the purchase under his name. They, they left on the 18th. February 21st, He's back in Alaska, waits until his daughter has left for school. It's a Monday. Then he dismantles the cabinets in his shed, chopping up the wood for firewood. The cabinets were permanently stained with Samantha's blood. He then rolled Samantha's body out of the cabinet. Uh, The the sleeping bag she had been wrapped in, he'd later say, was pretty much soaked with blood. Uh, He disposed of Samantha's stuff. Later, after his daughter had gotten back from school, done her homework, and gone to bed, he went back to work destroying evidence. He built a fire in the living room fireplace around 1 a.m., On the 22nd, while his girlfriend and daughter slept, he burns the tarp, uh, burns everything he could think of that Samantha had touched. Then he hangs Samantha's body up in the shed by ropes around her wrists and has sex with her corpse. My God, she has been dead for three weeks now. He is spiraling into darker and darker shit. While having necrophilia in the shed, uh, or not long after, his daughter comes looking for him. She knocks on the shed door. He tells her to go inside, eat her breakfast. He'll be in there in a minute, in a minute. How terrible uh, for her if she is familiar with the story now. I hope she is not. I hope she avoids listening to or reading anything associated uh, with her dad. Later that day, he goes to Target to buy a Polaroid camera. He's got a new idea, an idea that's going to lead to his capture. On February 24th, he decides to try and get some ransom money from Samantha's family. Problem is, she's already dead. Been dead over three weeks now. Uh, If he were to write a ransom note, he would have to make it appear as though she were alive and could be returned to her family. So that's what he tries to do. He wants to take some pictures of her. The problem is, you know, she's been dead for a little while. Uh, Her muscles are slack. No amount of posing is going to give her some type of human-like facial expression. He apparently spends hours with her corpse trying to get her into the right pose. He has lost what's left of his mind. He then posts a ransom note at Connors Bog Park in Anchorage, complete with Xeroxed pictures of Polaroids of Samantha, who is supposedly alive. One picture, what looks like silver duct tape, covers her mouth and chin. She's wearing eyeliner, looking at the camera. Her hair is braided. Her head is being held up by a man's hand. After he take after he took this and other pictures, he dismembered her body and then dropped it into a nearby frozen lake over three trips. To throw off suspicion, he built a shed over the hole he'd cut in the water. Uh, in Alaska, ice fishing is common. He knew no one would question a man building a small shelter while fishing. At 7.56 p.m., Samantha's boyfriend, Dwayne, gets a text from Samantha's phone. Connor Park sign, under pick of Albert. Ain't she pretty? Police rush to the park where they find his ransom note inside of a plastic bag, tack up a poster of a dog, or tacked up under a poster of a dog named Albert. The note was typed on plain white paper and read, I may not use the card much in Alaska due to small pop is in population, but as I will be leaving soon, I will be using it all over. Israel had requested 30000 dollars to be put in her bank account, implying that she had been moved to an arid state in the lower 48. She did almost get away twice, the note read, once on Tudor Road and once in the desert. Must be losing my touch. It said that if demands were met, Samantha would be freed in six months. No one knew that the picture was of Samantha's dead body, and that even with the demands met, they would never see her alive. It was now considered a kidnapping case, a federal crime. This is how the FBI gets involved in this investigation. That will end in the arrest of Israel Keys. On the advice of police on February 29th, 2012, Samantha's father, James, deposits $5,000 into the account, hoping that they can lure Samantha's kidnapper into making contact. And it works beautifully. Before this, the account Dwayne and Samantha shared had less than $5 in it. Four hours later, just before midnight, detectives watched amazed as someone actually tries to withdraw cash from an ATM in Anchorage. The guy tried to withdraw $600, uh, but most ATMs only let you take out a maximum of $500 a day. Not two hours after the first attempt comes another, a successful one this time, $500 from an ATM at the Denali Federal Credit Union, a six minute drive away from the site of the first failed attempt. Not playing it cool. At this point, it feels like part of Israel wants to get caught. Half an hour later at another ATM across town at Debar Road, there's another withdrawal for $500. And pretty sure my dad has used at least one of these ATMs before, if not all of them. That that just bothers me a little bit since I don't know where he was that day. Two days later, the security footage from the Denali ATM makes it to an FBI lab in Quantico. Uh, By the next day, analysts found that despite the bulky clothes the man in the picture was wearing, he had an athletic frame, or in the video he was wearing. Uh, His dark jacket, you know, uh, was possibly hooded. Uh, Looked like there was some light-colored paint splatter on the left chest. Lettering on the back seemed to read core. They wondered if the suspect had been or was now a Marine or a member of some other branch of the military. Uh, The man was wearing clear or light colored eyeglasses, a gray face mask, gray gloves, dark pants, light or white shoes. Uh, On March 6th, Keyes leaves town again on a flight uh, to Vegas with his daughter. Around 11 p.m. on the 7th, Keyes uses Samantha's debit card to make an ATM withdrawal in Wilcox, Arizona, almost 4,000 miles away from Anchorage. The FBI gets another pin, little ping, excuse me. Uh, Security footage at this ATM captures his car, a white Ford Focus, and gives police the lead they desperately needed. Also showed the same figure they had seen in the Denali ATM footage, about six feet tall, wearing bulky clothes and white tennis shoes. Just over an hour later from the previous withdrawal at 12.30 a.m. on March 8th, Keys uses Samantha's debit card to make a withdrawal in Lordsburg, New Mexico, an hour's drive from Wilcox. Then at 2.35 a.m., the card pings again from the same ATM, a balance inquiry. There was $3,598 left in the account. Another minute goes by, another $80 come out. He's pulling close to the daily $500 limit now, but then he makes a withdrawal in Shepherd, Texas. Several hours later, uh, at 10 PM still on March 8th, Israel and his daughter arrived back at his mother, Heidi's house in Wells. Keys visited his mom and some of his siblings who were in Texas to attend his sister's wedding. Two days later on March 10th, 2012, Keys uses Samantha's debit card again to make an ATM withdrawal, uh, in Humble, Texas, just outside of Houston. One of his sisters used this visit as an opportunity while he's down there to uh, convince him to convert back to their special brand of Christianity. A pastor from the Church of Wells, who's present at the home, was part of the discussion. And Keyes apparently told this pastor, you don't know the depths of darkness that I've gone to. You don't know what I've done. It does feel like he is just really spiraling out right now. Uh, March 13th, 2012, police in Lufkin, Texas, less than 20 miles from Wells, get a call from a state trooper. It was around 11 in the morning. The state trooper had been driving around hotel parking lots. and and the trooper had found that white Ford Focus that he was looking for. Police then head to the Quality Inn and Suites, find the car outside of room 115. Some officers head in to talk to the manager and then get a call from some other officers out in a squad car. They say, I've just seen a guy on the upper floor looking, or uh, yeah, I've just seen a guy on the upper floor looking down at the car I've got eyes on. Then another call from a car comes in, a white male adult exited room 215. He's placing items in the white Ford Focus. He's getting ready to go. They then follow him at a safe distance, uh, and then when his car has gone two miles over the speed limit and hits the fifty-seven miles per hour, they pull the Ford Focus over. The driver calmly pulls over, stops in the parking lot of the Cotton Patch Ca- Cotton Patch Cafe. Excuse me, uh, my dad wears a lot of cotton, huh? Uh, anyway, a uh, Texas Highway Patrol the arresting officer says, uh, "Where are you from?" Alaska answers. Keys. They ask to see his driver's license. Keys tells him that he's in town for his sister's wedding. He gives him more details about the wedding, including who's going to be there. Too many details, investigators think, without being prompted. He's nervous. He's sweating profusely. They ask him more questions about when he'd gotten in, how he'd paid for the gas, asked to search his wallet. Then Keyes says impatiently, you aren't searching anything. Am I under arrest? Well, he sure as shit was. On March 13th, 2012, Keyes is finally arrested. In his car, investigators find all kinds of stuff, including a pair of white sneakers, amber-tinted sunglasses, rolls of cash, An energy drink, a pink backpack, a green backpack, one gray DVD case containing uh, pornographic images of a a black female, Um, pornographic DVDs including transgender-based pornography, Uh, one copy of the first-ever platinum-selling CD released by Christian metal band Striper's 1986 classic, "To To Hell with the Devil. All right, maybe they didn't find that. Uh, They did find an Alaska Airlines flight confirmation for Israel Keys and his daughter to depart Anchorage on March 6th, arriving in Seattle, Washington before connecting to Las Vegas. They found several bottles of alcohol, still chilled in Walmart bags, a laptop, a black Samsung cell phone, the slider kind with the battery and the SIM card removed, a handgun, pair of binoculars, a ski mask, and a headlamp. And then when they searched his wallet, they find something really incriminating, Samantha Koenig's driver's license. The Texas police then start to interrogate Keys. They would state later that he struck everyone as being very smug, arrogant, superior. Uh, when they told him, we found the ATM card, the one belonging to Samantha's boyfriend in your wallet. Keys didn't flinch and said, I don't want to talk. Uh, but he didn't ask for a lawyer. So they press on. The FBI has pictures of you and your truck at the crime scene. One of them said, "Keys just shrugged. He said, if they had that, they would have already talked to me. Local officers were still, uh, were just shocked, I guess, at the, the way he kind of carried himself. Uh, they found him with some, you know, uh, this man's driver's license. Uh, he acted like he still didn't have a care in the world. Uh, he refused to talk further. So they cuff him, take him to Beaumont, Texas, where keys is going to be held in federal, in a federal penitentiary before his arraignment the very next day on March 14th, some FBI investigators from Alaska land in Houston. They go to talk to him and try to tell him that they know he's not a bad guy, that he's not a monster, that he had, you know, uh, some reason for doing this, but he just won't bite, won't really talk to him. They ask him, you know, how can he explain the ATM card in his wallet, you know, her driver's license. Uh, someone, Key said, had left a Ziploc bag on the front seat of his pickup truck a few weeks before. Inside that bag was a cell phone, uh, ATM card with a pin number scratched on it, you know, all, all the damning evidence. He assumed it was someone he had done construction work for who just owed him money, and they left that as a payment. <laughs> Investigators knew this was a ridiculous story. Uh, they told him, come on, dude, we, we knew you. we know you did this. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. Not able to get any further with him at this time. Investigators leave. And when they leave uh, the building, they run into his mom. As Keyes was being arraigned while the investigators waited on the steps of the prison, they saw a woman wearing her long white hair braided down her back, wearing a simple cotton dress that looked homemade as it was, it was Heidi Keyes. Uh, detectives go up to her, ask her if she knows anything about her son's activities. She says she can't help him. They beg her, telling her about James, Samantha's father, how much he just wanted to get his daughter back. And Heidi says, well, if God wants that girl to be found, she'll be found. And then she just turned and walked away. Of course, that's how she reacted. You know, that's what Jesus wanted her to do. Cover up for her murdering son. I fucking hate his parents. Uh, Keys is taken back to Anchorage on March 30th at 5.45 p.m. Friday, March 30th. Investigators interrogate Keys uh, at the U.S. Attorney's Office. They're still hopeful that Samantha is alive until Keys makes a reference to transporting different bags down to uh, Matanuska Lake. They ask him what was in the bags, and he says, well, the first day was the head, legs, and the arms. They ask him of Samantha Koenig, and he just says, yep. Well, at least now they know, I guess. They then ask him to go through the night of her kidnapping, and he is surprisingly calm and honest. What were you thinking at the time, they ask? What, about taking her with me, he says? Yeah. He says, "Mm, I liked her. They point out that he was scheduled to head out to travel to catch a cruise the next day, and he says, yeah, in a few hours, yeah. That was kind of part of the idea. He then mentioned that once he got Samantha in his car, he tried to talk to her. The more she replied, the more he talked until they seemed like they had some kind of rapport. I was trying, you know, to seem like a normal person, Keyes said. And when he says this, uh, this tips off investigators that Keyes does not consider himself to be a normal person, that he might have done this before. Now they start to think that they may have captured a serial killer. They try to get him to say how he would killed Samantha. He suddenly turned defiant. He said he won't admit, uh, you know, how he killed her. Um, just that he was responsible for her death. And then he starts making some demands. He tells the police, stop going through his girlfriend, Kimberly's stuff at their house. And if they keep doing that, he's not going to tell them how he killed Samantha. He said, I don't want to hear about you questioning her again. You know, like I say, obviously you have no reason to trust me, but I can tell you right now, there is no one who knows me, who has ever known me, who knows anything about me, really. I'm two different people. And the only person who knows about what I'm telling you, the kinds of things I'm telling you is me. How long have you been two different people, they ask. A long time, he replies, 14 years, right? All those mystery trips uh, makes me think about that. Also makes me think about, you know, my dad. I don't know what he's doing right right now, even. (sighs) The interviews continue the following day, April Fool's Day. Keyes would end up being interviewed 24 times over seven months. To date, the FBI has only released five of these interviews to the public. We know from what info has been released that Keyes wanted the death penalty. He wanted to be executed as soon as possible. He wanted no media exposure. He did not want to get famous. Uh, Also, he wanted to be charged federally, not by any individual state, because he didn't want to go through a lot of trials. Uh, During his interviews, Keyes often hinted at other victims, people he may have killed on his travels, how he operated. He seemed to enjoy playing a little back and forth game with the FBI to negotiate his sentence. Investigators learned learned soon after his arrest that Keyes was a big fan of serial killers, Mickey Dahl, an Anchorage police officer, had overseen the search of Kimberly's house and found scores of books on serial killers. She knew that Israel thought of himself as an aficionado, so she took on a kind of uh, humble tone when she spoke to him, resembling uh, uh, Clarice Starling's approach, you know, with Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs, uh, telling him she wasn't up to speed, needed his help to solve some of his crimes, a uh, carefully calibrated move to play up to his ego. And through this little game she played with keys, uh, you know, Keyes tells her about Bill and Rain Courier's murders. That's how they get solved, that Vermont couple. Keyes hints that they were two of just many other victims. Uh, Keyes gave another interview on April 5th, another on April 6th. In the April 6th interview, he told investigators that he would tell them everything if and only if they gave him an execution date and it had to be soon. He wanted to be executed quickly. He told investigators if everything could be wrapped up in a year, his daughter would have a chance to grow up without a trial happening during her teenage years. Uh, less than two months later, Uh, Maybe rethinking the whole getting executed thing, Keyes tries to make a run for it. He tries to escape. He was in a packed federal courtroom, bound by leg irons and handcuffed to uh, a chain, uh, seated at a defense table. He was surrounded by eight armed guards. There were six U.S. Marshals in the back of the room, and he still decides to try and uh, bust out of there. Suddenly, he springs out of his chair. He had secretly freed himself from his handcuffs. He was able to leap over the gallery's railing and he started jumping between the rows. Uh, It took a taser to finally bring this crazy fucker down. Crazy that with all this law enforcement, he still made it as far as he did. Uh, Members of the public in the courtroom that day, as he's being tackled, start screaming, kill him, kill him. Pretty crazy spectacle. Uh, Five days later, on May 29th, Keyes is interviewed by Officer Jeff Bell, Special Agent Steve Payne, and Assistant U.S. Attorney Frank Russo. Uh, Russo gives Keyes an update on an agreement with Vermont about charging him for the courier murders. Russo says a new letter gives both sides what they want but he reminds Keyes it's not a legally binding document just to show a good faith between Keyes and the state of Vermont. Uh, with this letter, Vermont says they will not release information to the, to the press or charge him under Vermont state law. Russo says it would be political suicide if they go back against what the letter said. Keyes says again, he just wants to avoid publicity. They summarize the deal. That the letter proposes keys avoids media attention and law enforcement will not publicly identify him in connection with the courier murders. As long as he cooperates by providing information about other crimes, locations of bodies, and the names of other victims, Payne uh, tells Keys they are having trouble locating the courier's bodies in the landfill. Keys responds, "I feel almost guilty, costing the taxpayers a lot of money to find them." Uh, never said he felt guilty about murdering innocent people, but uh, said he felt guilty about costing some taxpayer, you know, or some taxpayers some money. Uh, okay, uh, Payne informs Keys that since the investigation is an ongoing federal investigation, this will decrease the amount of information that gets released to the public. Keys tells him, "My concern: the problem is nowadays." The more stuff my name is attached to, the more likely it is that somebody's going to try and do some stupid freaking TV special or you know, you know how it is. Nowadays, like with all this true crime bullshit that people are obsessed with, I'm concerned about that. That makes me feel good, knowing that Israel Keys would not like this podcast being done about him. Also, love that a serial killer is judging people for being obsessed with stories about serial killers. Like they're the problem, not him. Uh, Bell tells him that they have 10 missing people that they think are connected to him but the FBI is hesitant to ask New York for assistance in finding the bodies because that will most likely lead to releasing information to the media. Russo wants to show Keyes pictures of his boat in Washington, ask him questions, uh, but Keyes refuses to reveal information until the issue with Vermont is resolved and the issue with New York is settled. He's worried that pressure from higher powers in the government will force him into a standoff with the FBI where he has to give information or they do a press release. Officer Bell encourages him to give them that info sooner, sooner so that won't happen. Keys agrees to tell them about some bodies in Washington State then there were four he said two on one side of the state two on the other the first two victims he murdered sometime between July 2001, or I mean I'm sorry July 2001 and 2005 uh, they had been together the other two he took and killed separately sometime between the summer of 2005 and 2006. he said in one case he used a bayliner boat he'd purchased from his ex-tammy's ex-husband to dump a body into Lake Crescent and that was all he would tell them about those murders at that time uh, on June 7th, 2012, Keyes is interviewed by Officer Bell, Special Agent Special Agent Payne, and U.S. Assistant Attorney Russo. Uh, again, at this point, the interviews have been going on for a couple months, and the FBI was getting very frustrated with the lack of progress with Keys. He didn't want to be charged in any other states. The deal with Vermont was not going the way he wanted. He's getting pissed. Vermont wanted him. So did New York. It was predicted that Washington would charge him when they managed to recover the victims. Investigators are still trying to convince him to uh, complete the deal with New York. If he gave information in New York about the location of that victim's body, Vermont wouldn't charge him, and the case would remain federal. But before giving info about other victims, Keyes wants to maximize what he can get uh, by giving that information. He admits in an interview that he has a schedule of how he would like things to play out. Man, a true uh, serial killer obsessed with control, right, the organized killer. Uh, Keys informs the men that no matter what they tell him, he won't give them anything until the next week. At this time, he says, there's gonna be a lot of frustration before this is all over. But I mean- there, it's already been years of frustration for a lot of people. So they're going to have to learn to live with it for a little bit longer. Investigators then present him with two options. Option A, he cooperates, keeps the deal with Vermont. Things move on the timeline he wants. Option B, Vermont gets frustrated. He's not providing info about the New York victim. So Vermont charges him based on state laws. He doesn't want that. because Vermont doesn't have the death penalty. Uh, he asks him to wait a week so he can talk with his lawyer about this deal. He's mentioned that he wants the other states that they're starting to talk about, uh, possibly Wyoming and Utah, not to find out about his victims until his death because they can't prosecute a dead man. His plan is to wait until right before his execution to tell them about all his victims so he can avoid the media attention that he does not want. Uh, So odd this way, right? So many of these dirtbags, they love that attention. July 26, 2012, Keyes interviewed again. Uh, The FBI and police find out about the boat purchased or find the boat Keyes purchased in 2005. They believe he used this boat to dispose of bodies in Crystal Lake. They tell him they find stains or they found stains. that could have DNA on them, fibers, a ball of hair, other things. He tells his interviewers that if the case goes to Capital Crimes Unit, he wants to be guaranteed to be approved for the death penalty. And again, you know, he keeps harping on this, doesn't want the details to be public. He says, there are certain aspects of the things that I've done that I don't, I would prefer never to become public. As far as different things that were done with the bodies and the sexual assault stuff, That type of stuff, I just don't—we got to figure out something different. Keyes expresses his frustration that a reporter from Vermont somehow got information and released it to the public already. He also tells them that he's upset with the interviews that he's been doing uh, that they will be shown during the hearing. He also says he doesn't want to be charged for every crime he's uh, been—you know, that he committed. He was already facing charges for carjacking, kidnapping, sexual assault, and murder for the couriers, and he has a real problem with the carjacking charge. Uh, What a fucking— Weirdo. Like that matters at this point. Uh, also apparently upset that his family in Texas has heard that he is responsible for the courier's murders, uh, even though he was responsible for them. Investigators tell him about a letter of intent that says that if he pleads guilty in Alaska, he won't have to travel to Vermont to, Vermont to be charged. And that then he has a chance to either be prosecuted by the state of Alaska or federally. And Key's response, I'm going to end up in freaking max lockdown year after year. You guys bouncing me around. Poor baby, how tragic. It's not going exactly the way he wants. Uh, November 29th, he is interviewed for the last time. Uh, Investigators don't know this is gonna be the final interview, but it will be. Investigators inform him about the search for the New York victim, which is still ongoing. They know that the body is near the area of the bank he robbed in Tupper Lake. They wanna set up cameras, have him watch the cameras to guide the search crew. They also searched a house that he's stayed in with his family. Uh, For evidence, near the house, they found a mattress in the woods with women's clothing under it as well as a man's ring and beads from a necklace in the fire pit area. They then inform him that they found his perfect right thumbprint on an ammo tray. He doesn't believe he could ever have made such a mistake, but they tell him it's true. Uh, he says he was just too lazy to dig a hole for the New York victim that he just put rocks in the body. He adds that he was planning on going back to that crime scene in the summer of 2012 to bury the body at, at an abandoned house. And that he was going to burn it down afterwards. Right, he's always taking these multiple trips. I think sometimes he would just go back to crime scenes. Investigators then pivot to talking about the Washington victims uh, who are still unknown, no bodies recovered. Israel tells them there's no possibilities the bodies could still be intact because they weren't contained in a bag or a box. He tells them a knife he'd bought at a Walmart in Port Angeles was used in those murders and uh, also other weapons. He also tells them that neither Washington victim was shot and then would not answer them when they asked if he had strangled them, saying, you'll get the whole story eventually. He fucking loves this. Loves controlling how he dispenses the information that they need to solve or not solve these cases. Keyes is then informed that they found a note in his cell about a male and female couple that he killed in Washington. And Keyes admits that he did kill one couple in Washington and that there are at least two victims in Lake Crescent. He says he used about four to five milk jugs per victim to weigh them down. At the end of the interview, Key requests an hour of internet access to search for any media articles about him. He must not have liked what he'd found. Uh or maybe he was emailing with my dad and he didn't like, you know, what my dad sent him. You know, I don't I don't know who my dad emailed on November 29th, 2012. Uh two days later, on the night of December 1st, 2012, Israel Keyes found dead in his jail cell. Guards are warned that Keyes shouldn't be given a razor blade, or they they had been warned about that, but he somehow got a hold of one anyway, and he slit his wrists, strangled himself with a sheet while he lay in bed. He wanted to go out on his own terms. That's what he did. His final act of defiance, dark victory of sorts. He controlled things, not the FBI. Uh, The following morning, when his body is discovered, FBI and police are shocked. They did not see this coming. They thought he was enjoying uh, this process of negotiations, the thrill he got, the power he felt from withholding information from them. Uh, Also, they were surprised by the very lengthy suicide note he left, very odd suicide note. Uh, Police also found, so creepy, 12 individual pieces of paper in his cell uh, with skulls drawn on them in Key's blood one of the papers says we are one and then the other pieces of paper yeah just skulls drawn on them and please believe that these skulls represent the 11 victims and then himself what the fuck uh, and then here's the note it's like, it's like a weird poem where will you go you clever little worm if you bleed your host dry back in your ride the night is still young street lights push back push bl- back the black neat rose Off to the right, a graveyard appears. Lines of stones, bodies molder below. Turn away quick, bob your head to the seat. As straight through that stop sign, you roll loaded truck with lights off, slams into you broadside, your flesh smashed as metal explodes. You may have been free. You loved living your lie. Fate had its own scheme crushed like a bug. You still die. Soon, now you'll join those ranks of dead or your ashes the wind will soon blow. Family and friends will shed a few tears, pretend it's off to heaven, you go. But the reality is you were just bones and meat, and with your brain died also your soul. Send the dying to wait for their death in the comfort of retirement homes. Quietly, quickly say it's for the best. It's best for you so their fate you'll not know. Turn a blind eye back to the screen, soak in your reality shows. Stand in front of your mirror and you preen in a plastic castle you call home. Land of the free, land of the lie, land of scheme, Americanize. Now it's like a weird song. Consume what you don't need, stars you idolize. Pursue what you admit is a dream, then it's American die. Get in your big car so you can get to work fast on roads made of dinosaur bones. Punch in on the clock and sit on your ass, playing stupid ass games on your phone. Paper on your wall says you got smarts. Uh, The test that you took told you so, but you would still crawl like the vermin you are once your precious power grids blow. Land of the free, land of the lie, land of the scheme, Americanize. It is like a song. It's like you wrote it like a weird, like the shittiest Rage Against the Machine song. Now that I have held you, now that I, now that I have you held tight, I will tell you a story. Speak soft in your ear so you know that it's true. You're my love at first sight, and though you're scared to be near me, my words penetrate your thoughts now in an intimate prelude. I looked in your eyes. They were so dark, warm, and trusting as though you had not a worry or care. The more guileless the game, the better potential to fill up those pools with your fear. Your face framed in dark curls like a portrait, the sun shone through highlights of red. What color I wonder, and how straight will will it turn plastered back with the sweat of your blood? Your wet lips were a promise of a secret unspoken, nervous laugh as it burst like a pulse of blood from your throat. There will be no more laughter here. I feel your body tense up, my hand now on your shoulder, your eyes. Forget the lady called luck. She does not abide near me, for her powers don't extend to those who are dead. And then it's a bunch of illegible words. Then would that I could keep you, let you be the master of your own fate, knowing full well what's at stake. My pretty captive butterfly, colorful wings, my hand smears. I somehow repaint them with punishment and tears. It's like every once in a while, he rhymes, and every once in a while he's like, ah, fuck it. A Violent metamorphosis, emerge my dark moth princess. I would come often and worship on the altar of your flesh. You shudder with revulsion and try to shrink far from me. I'll have you tied down and begging to become my Stockholm sweetie. Then he writes some notes regarding the last three sentences being read to a specific song. Okay, talk is over. Words are placid and weak. Back it with action or it all comes off cheap. Watch close while I work now. Feel the electric shock of my touch. Open your trembling flower on your petals or your petals. I'll crush. Maybe he didn't leave those music instructions, uh, but you know, it, it feels right. It feels right tonally. Uh, on December 8th, 2012, only eight people attend the funeral of Israel Keys his mom, four of his sisters, three of his brothers in laws. Brothers-in-law, his girlfriend and daughter do not attend. Good for them. Uh, Not sure. Can't say for certain if my dad was there or not. I don't know uh, where my dad was in December 8th, 2012. At some point following his death, it seems that his daughter ends up uh, with her mom again in Washington State. I hope she got a lot of counseling for all this. And with that, our Time Suck timeline has come to an end. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Israel Keys, what a dirtbag. And sorry if I had some awkward pauses around some of the dates. There was uh, some of these timelines, this FBI information, so many like rental car dates. And I kind of went back and forth debating like how much of those to include. It it got really repetitive. I cut out a lot of them uh, and then just combined quite a few because it was just like, okay, I get it. I get it. He went here, Uh, but I I did find it all very interesting. I found this, uh, one of the more interesting true crime ones in a while, just his upbringing. So strange, Uh, just such a control freak, sadist. Uh, Yeah, and just born into that, such an odd family of religious, you know, extreme fundamentalism. Interesting too, how it went from like Mormonism to then this Christian identity, a couple different like branches, uh, to then Amish, to then the mom ends up in this, Fucking cult in Texas. Like what? Uh, Keyes, the second oldest of the Keyes kids, learned to hunt, build shit in the woods, uh, where he also learned, you know, to hate Jewish people and non-whites and fear the Illuminati. Uh, He rebelled dark ways, secretly gave up on his parents' faith, tortured at least one cat to death, set a bunch of shit on fire, broke into neighbor's homes, stole their guns, maybe even killed two local 12-year-old girls. Uh, When he told his family he was done with religion, his dad stopped speaking to him forever, potentially as early as 1996. Keyes, you know, Uh, started to murder, started taking odd solo solo trips around the country not that long afterwards, racking up a a shit ton of rental car miles and committing in all likelihood at least around a dozen kidnappings, murders, and rapes, who knows how many bank robberies. Uh, Keyes finally arrested in March of 2012 for the murder of 18-year-old Anchorage barista and high school senior Samantha Koenig, a victim he also raped, uh, while in custody. Keyes confessed to killing multiple additional people but he only ever gave two additional names. Bill and Lorraine Courier from Essex, Vermont, gave a lot of clues about other victims, but wouldn't, you know, uh, help the FBI actually track down their bodies, uh, wouldn't give them actual names. And, you know, a a lot of those people are still being looked for. The remains are still being looked for. Uh, As a serial killer, yeah, incredibly unusual. He borrowed from some of history's worst dirtbags, taking inspiration from people like Ted Bundy. Uh, Though The people he went after didn't fit one physical type, gender or age. Uh, usually strangled them, but killed Bill Courier with a gun, uh, likely shot other victims that haven't conclusively been linked to him. Uh, liked to set fires, sexually assault victims, sometimes when they were alive, sometimes when they were dead. Uh, he could be extremely calculated and meticulous, usually was, but then at the end, uh, very reckless with his final crimes. Uh, prior to his last few weeks of freedom, he left murder caches all around the country so he could come back and make a kill later that would be difficult to trace back to him. These caches contain weapons, money he got from bank robberies, other tools, and some of them might still be out there. You know, he withheld a lot from the FBI, never said exactly how many of these he had stashed around. Uh, Keys enjoyed killing, showed no remorse, openly admitted to the FBI that he would have continued killing if he had not been caught. Once he was caught in Texas, then he began to try and control and manipulate the investigation. He did that from the beginning to end. We could tell things weren't going to go the exact way he wanted them to. Uh, He decided to commit suicide in his jail cell on December 1st, 2012, and left that very strange suicide note slash poem slash, I don't know, weird, insane clown posse fucking song. Uh, He wanted to die quickly after his capture. He claimed to protect his daughter from the attention of having a serial killer for a father. He clearly cared about how this would all affect her, but he sure didn't give a fuck about anyone else's daughters. Uh, He seemed to care about his girlfriend, uh, definitely cared about his daughter, uh, seemed to care about his mom. Seemed to care about himself, but didn't seem to give a single fuck about anyone else. Uh, he may have liked my dad. I don't know how well they were getting along uh, towards the end, if they even knew each other. you know, I don't know, There's a lot I don't know. Uh, glad he's dead. Israel Keyes, not my dad. He's he's doing fine, and God knows what he's up to right now. Uh, wish, of course, Keyes would have confessed to everything to, to give the family's closure, but at least with his death, you know, one less sadistic sociopath in the world. That's about the most positive takeaway I can take from any of this. Uh, Let's look at some more takeaways in today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Uh, Number one, Israel Keyes definitely killed four, may have killed 11 or more victims. His victims ranged vastly in age and appearance, with some of them maybe being as young as 12 or as old as 55, male and female. This along with the fact that Keyes traveled such great distances all over the U.S., from Maine to Alaska to Hawaii to San Diego Uh, all over Texas, et cetera, often driving for days in rental cars to unknown destinations has made it extremely difficult for the FBI to track down his victims. They are still working on tracking down many of his victims. Uh, Number two, Israel Keyes had such a strange childhood. For most of his childhood, his fun, hating, world-fearing parents raised him and his nine siblings out in the wilderness around Colville, Washington, completely isolated from society and technology. There, the Keyes kids were homeschooled and attended a white supremacist Christian identity church. Did his childhood turn him into a serial killer? No, I don't think it did. But maybe, you know, probably, definitely not the best way to raise your kids. Uh, number three, Israel Keys wanted a, a quick execution to prevent his daughter from growing up with a trial for her serial killer father playing out in front of her. Uh, was he really a good protective dad? We have no idea. Um, you know, how he really behaved when no one was watching, we don't know. As he himself said, no one really knew the real Israel Keys. Uh, number four, Striper is an American Christian heavy metal band from Orange County, California that formed in 1983. Uh, They've released 12 albums. One of them has gone platinum. Two others have gone gold. Uh, Heaven's Metal Fanzine has ranked To Hell with the Devil number six on his top 100 Christian metal albums uh, all-time best list. In 2018, the band released an album called Goddamn Evil, and I have to say, I don't care for the cursing in the title, and I doubt Heidi Keyes approves either. And number five, new info. We didn't mention this, but Keyes was apparently really into the Insane Clown Posse. Seriously, he may have never listened to Striper, but he was big into ICP. Just when you thought you couldn't like him any less. He was a rapist, a murderer, and he liked Insane Clown Posse. Easy juggalos. I'm kidding around, kind of. Uh, Keyes loved these dudes. He might not have been a true juggalo, but he did have several large ICP posters hanging in his barracks when he was in the army. Uh, Insane Clown Posse, often abbreviated as ICP, an American hip-hop duo composed of Violent J, whose real name is Joseph Bruce, and also Shaggy Two Dope, and that is uh, Shaggy Shaggy Two Dope. That's his that's his birth name. Uh, no, I wish. Now his real name Joseph Utzler. Founded in Detroit in 1989, Insane Clown Posse performs a style of hardcore music known as horrorcore. Super violent, often cartoonishly violent lyrics. Uh, the songs of Insane Clown Posse center uh, thematically on the mythology of the Dark Carnival, something the duo made up. It's a metaphoric limbo in which the lives of the dead are judged by one of several entities. Uh, do I think listening to ICP can turn someone into a sadistic murderer? Absolutely not. Am I surprised to know that Keyes was into them? Nope. Uh, he knew mommy and daddy would have hated ICP. He sure as shit didn't get to listen to the, uh, the Juggalo music back in his Colville little no electricity, no plumbing having cabin. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Israel Keys has been sucked. Darkly interesting tale. Uh, I probably had more fun than anyone else is going to have listening to uh, me talking about throwing my dad into it. Uh, he may not find it as funny as I do. But I was amusing myself, acting like my dad may have been Israel Keys' uh serial killer partner. <laughs> What's wrong with me? Thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making time suck. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, uh, the script keeper, Zach Flannery, Sophie Fact Sorceress Evans, Bid Elixir, Logan Keith, the art warlock running badmagicmerch.com and doing the social posts. Uh, thanks to all of those who have joined the Cult of the Curious private Facebook group. Over 25,000 members in there. That is fun to say. Go make some friends. Uh, thanks to Liz Hernandez and our all seen eyes running the Cult of the Curious Facebook page. And thanks to Beefsteak and the Mod Squad. Running the Time Suck Discord, and thanks to uh, all of you Space playing the Time Suck trivia game on the app. Uh, Bodie two ten currently the round seven leader with four thousand three hundred and fifty seven points. Good luck, Bodie, and everyone else. Nice work. Uh, next week, and have a lot of fun. Going to go full wackadoodle. Haven't done that for a while on Time Suck. We're going to dive back into the world of conspiracy theories. Look at a very populated, very well known building. Some think might be uh, you know one of the gates to hell or a UFO base, or a secret government testing facility. We've touched on it before. Now we're diving fully in. We're going to talk about the Denver International Airport. All roads lead to the Denver Airport. Since its inception in 1995, some have thought that there is something very suspicious about DIA. For starters, it is massive. The property built on—it's built on bigger than the entire area of Manhattan, the entire little island, roughly 53 square miles. And it's filled with things that might give a normal person pause. Things like giant murals depicting violent conflict and environmental destruction, gargoyles by the baggage claim, a statue of the Egyptian God of death. Uh, the airport's most famous art installation is a 32 foot statue of a blue stallion with glowing red demonic looking eyes. Uh, it is pretty creepy. I think it also it looks pretty awesome. But uh, but is, is it actually loaded with symbolism about the end of days and the new world order? Is there Illuminati messages being spread by these, uh, Art installations in the Denver International Airport? Maybe, but probably not, but maybe. Uh, Theories about the DIA run the gamut from uh, paranormal to extraterrestrial to government secrets and beyond. People think it's the place where the elite will convene at the end of days to bring the world under one globalist government or that the many tunnels beneath it are being used to transport UFOs or bodies. We'll get into all these theories, including their supporters, as well as many other uh, things of note about the DIA including what makes it such a fantastic airport. It consistently gets good ratings from travel magazines. I always preferred taking a layover at Salt Lake City or Minneapolis or Seattle, but maybe I was just connected to the wrong terminal in Denver. Aliens, gargoyles, conspiracies, and more next week on Time Suck. Right now, let's head over to today's Time Sucker updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker updates. Super sucker Joe Crabb has a Cummins Law moment to share and a cool update to last week's Operation Paperclip Suck. He writes, Hello, Suckmaster. So I just realized while listening to the Emmanuel David cult suck that I've sent in two messages to the wrong email address. My wife and I have been huge fans of your stand-up for a long time. My wife got me into Scared to death, which led me down the rabbit hole to time suck. I've been binging my way through the episodes. And while at work, I was listening to the Yahim Kroll suck on my Bluetooth speaker when a coworker walked into my office. All he heard was you describing Kroll prematurely ejaculating onto his date. And he just simply asked, what the hell are you listening to? Fortunately, I work at a laid-back wood shop and it's hard to offend the people I work with. Uh, while listening to the latest episode of Time Suck, I was reminded of a person from my area. I grew up in Terre Haute, Indiana. There's a museum there called Candles, Children of Auschwitz Nazi Deadly Lab Experiments Survivors. It's a Holocaust museum, the Candles Holocaust Museum, which was started by an amazing person named Eva Kaur. She was a survivor of testing done by Joseph Mengele on twins. She and her twin sister were some of the very few to survive until the Red Army liberated them. The rest of their family were killed in the concentration camp. When I was in middle school, she came and talked to our school about her life and what it took for her to deal with the life she had been given. She was eventually able to forgive the people who experimented on her. If it were me, I would have a hard time doing that to someone who did that to me as a child. There's a video on YouTube, which I will include, uh, that is her telling her story. Sorry for the long message. Love the podcast. Three out of five stars, wouldn't change a thing. Uh, if we can ever get past this COVID stuff and get back to comedy shows again, my wife and I will definitely be up front and center. Joey. Oh, man, thank you, Joey. And dude, what an intense YouTube video you passed along. Any, I watched it. Anyone else who wants to watch it, it's about uh, seven, eight minutes long. It's titled Eva Kor, the Holocaust Survivor Who Forgave the Nazis. It's on the BBC Ideas channel. Link in today's show notes on the TimeSuck app to the video as well. It's powerful shit. Uh, And what a cool museum. I checked out their website. Uh, How terrible that some, you know, uh, fucking Nazi, neo-Nazi idiot uh, set it on fire in 2003. Fucking Holocaust deniers, Aryan Nation assholes. Uh, Eva had it rebuilt in 2005. Her story is so tragic and inspiring at the same time. What a special meat sack. Uh, She died last year in 2019 at the age of 85. Uh, And there's a documentary also that I have not watched, 2006 documentary about her story titled Forgiving Dr. Mengele. Yeah, She she actually, uh, in the the YouTube video I watched, she talks about she got one of the doctors from Auschwitz uh, who had the job of confirming how many people died each time a group was killed in the gas chamber to go with her to Auschwitz and sign a document confirming it really happened in his advanced years, in his 80s he does this. It's a a very cool video. Uh, Thank you, Joey, for turning me on to her very powerful story. How she talks about forgiveness is is really inspiring. Uh, Hail Nimrod to you. Uh, Awesome sucker, Heidi Wallace, not Heidi keys also has an update inspired by Operation Paperclip. Uh, She has an important message. She writes, Good morning, Bojangles and Master Sucker. I am finishing the Operation Paperclip Suck, and you spoke of a disease that my husband has been fighting for 22 years. My husband was diagnosed with chronic lymphocytic leukemia in June of 1999 uh, when we had an 18-year-old, an eight-year-old, a one-year-old, and a five-month-old. Damn. He has gone through chemotherapy on and off for the last 22 years. He has been on chemo nonstop for seven years now. It has mutated into aggressive form and he's still fighting. This disease has been hard on the entire family. It's stolen so much from our family yet has given us so much. We've been married 26 years. So for 22 of the 26 years, he's been fighting for his life. The only cure for it is a bone marrow transplant, but there have been zero matches for him. I plead with everyone to sign up to be an organ and tissue donor. It may save someone you love. Thank you for keeping me entertained while I work from home. Thank you for making me laugh through all this crap going on in the world. Take care. Love you uh, love your family. Sorry. <laughs> love your family. And remember to tell them you love them. Uh, thank you, Heidi. Uh, yes, I am signed up. So is Lindsay. Yes. Yeah, sign up for that shit. Sign up to be an organ donor, uh, you know, tissue donor. Yeah. You're, you don't have to be alive to save someone else's life. Pretty, pretty powerful. And your husband, my God, what a tough son of a bitch. Good on him for being such a fighter. Bojangles is very impressed. Uh, I'd say, you know, I hope he keeps fighting, but I don't think anybody needs to say that. Sounds like, of course he will. That's just who he is, what he does. Uh, So yeah, thank you for sending that message and spreading the word. Uh, Another Operation Paperclip related message embarrassed sucker Russ McCrory was put in an awkward situation due to my Magnus von Braun lies. He writes, damn it, Dan. So I'm listening to the latest episode. I'm listening to you talk about the Bavarian werewolf. (laughs) And right after you finish this story, but before you can get into the announcer bit, I have to pause to join a Zoom call for work. My coworker has a degree in history and is a World War II expert slash nerd. So I could not wait to impress him with this new knowledge (laughs) that I'd gained on a lesser known World War II figure. So I launched into the story. He's smiling the whole time I'm telling it. After I finish, he just says, where'd you hear that from? I tell him about Time Suck. He responds with, Magnus von Braun was definitely not a professional wrestler and did not take on a gorilla. (laughs) But I'm most definitely gonna check out this podcast because it sounds hilarious. Uh, So good news, we might have a new sucker. Bad news for me is you got me, you bastard. We had a good laugh. I told him, I'm almost positive. You got me with one of your many diversions. After the Zoom call, I pressed play to continue the episode, only to hear you give us the classic, JK, gosh dang. And I text him to tell him that I got got. Thank you for the countless hours of entertainment you provide us meat sacks with. I hope to catch you on the road in 2021, whether in Vegas or another city I can travel to, Russ. Uh, I like this, Russ. <laughs> Glad you had some laughs with the coworker. Happy to have another uh, history buff in the cult. Very happy. I just want so badly for at least one person to fall from my Bavarian werewolf bullshit. And I'm so glad that you did. And I, and I hope I see you on the road someday and hope you continue to enjoy the show. And now suffering sucker, Wade Brander, could use a shout out. As caring sack Daniel Dack has brought to our attention, she writes, first of all, hail Lucifina and praise Nimrod. I'm from Pierre, South Dakota. I'm a volunteer firefighter on Pierre Fire and a correctional officer at a local at our local prison. I have to thank my boyfriend, Wade, for introducing me to Time Suck and anything associated. My weekly listen is Scared to Death, Creeper for Life, Lindsay is my idol. That's adorable. Uh, The reason why I messaged you is because my boyfriend, Wade, is a big fan of Dan, all of his hard work. He can't go a day without a Dan Cummins quote. Sadly, the evening of Thursday, January 14th, he lost everything he had when his apartment building caught on fire, Uh, everything considered a complete loss between fire and water damage. I managed to save only a couple items from his apartment after walking through ankle-deep water One hat of his was a time suck hat that was miraculously completely untouched. I'm trying to lift his spirits a little because of his current situation. Are there any way you guys can give Wade Brander from Pierre, South Dakota a shout out? I know hearing Dan Cummins say his name will definitely put a long lost smile on his face. Sorry for the long message. Wishing everyone is safe and well. Wade, Uh, so sorry about the fire. So glad you weren't hurt in it. Uh, Fuck man. Uh, Yeah, super shitty. No way around that. Luckily, they can't burn your memories. Glad you still have those and that you have a super caring girlfriend. That's huge. Uh, Lucifina and I wish you so much sympathy sex. I wish you nothing but good health, but if you do die soon, I hope it's, I hope it's due to Danielle literally fucking your brains out. Uh, seriously though, hope things turn around and uh, and you're awesome for sending this message in Danielle. And yeah, Wade, man, hope, hope we see you on the road one of these days and hope life is a lot better for you when I do. Uh, last one now, a quickie. From mail-carrying meat sack, Joshua. Uh, This is ridiculous. You have a ridiculous last name, which you know. Uh, O-L-S-Z-T-A. What is that like? Czechoslovakian? Joshua Olsla. Olsta. Joshua Olsta. I have no idea. Joshua writes, hey, Dan, good luck saying my last name. Exactly. Mailman here. Heard of your podcast from the guys at Small Town Murder. Finally got a chance to start listening the other day. Loving the content so far. I was finishing up The Dark Ages Suck, which I almost changed. And stop listening to when you were joking about it not being a good episode. <laughs> I'm glad I stuck with it because when it was time for uh, emails, I was blown away to hear you utter the name of a letter carrier that I trained a few years ago. The thoughts of simulation theory were screaming in my head. Thanks for the laughs. Love to the other mail carriers out there. New Meat Sack listener, Josh. Josh, oh, it's Uh, Too funny, Josh. Uh, I wonder if anyone else heard my lie that it was just a terrible fucking episode and skip it and actually did skip it. Uh, that would weirdly make me happy. Uh, cool that you heard a coworker who had written in or, you know, heard their name. Thanks for uh, keeping that mail coming. Also during a challenging time, my God, to deliver shit. I hope you keep enjoying the show. Big thanks to James and Jimmy over at small town murder and crime and sports for pushing our direction. Love those guys. And yeah, and and thank you for me as well. To all the mail carriers, all the Amazon, uh, drivers, all the UPS drivers, FedEx delivery drivers, you know, more and more people getting shit sent to their house, you know, with, uh, since COVID kind of changed the way people purchase things and it just has put weird pressure on a lot of the a lot of drivers i know to handle bigger uh, bigger volume of packages to uh, work longer hours uh, also some of them you know we don't know their health situations some of them worried about covid but still having to do this as essential workers and blah 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 and anyway i'm just uh i'm thankful for you guys doing what you do and gals of course i shouldn't use the the guy default thank you for you for you meat sex, doing what you do uh, thank you to everyone time suckers i needed that we all did thanks again for listening meat sacks uh more bad magic productions content coming every week if you want to want to watch it on video form you can on youtube if you want to hear it in audio form you can find it all over the place uh spooks with scared to death late tuesday nights silliness with is we dumb wednesdays at noon pacific time Uh, also i do host a podcast show little inspiration nuggets every morning monday through friday little seven eight minute episodes incredible feats uh, please don't raise your kids in a tent this week because you're afraid of the government and of the devil. You and your fam should just instead keep on sucking. Okay, so this will just take a second. Okay. Uh, we have some, some murder photos. These are some cold cases. Oh, oh and I think okay. you might know uh, one of the gentlemen that's in the background of every single one of these pictures. Really? Right. So it's... Um, Oh my god no oh, that's my dad that's your dad right there yep that's okay. my dad for sure what? um this one is that oh yeah 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 oh that's yeah that's, absolutely that's, that's my that's dad your dad I recognize that shirt I, okay. I bought him that hat that's my dad okay and then this one yep yep that's my dad okay. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. I can absolutely confirm that and last, last one this is just a picture of your dad yeah that is my dad mm-hmm. that's also my dad and then we this was this was in one of the bodies this that knife was in one of the that's my dad's knife
1: price drop time oh. to shop.